this mystery man of Arabia. Adventurous enough to win the love of a princess. Powerful enough to bend the fabled golden arrow to his will. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents a new motion picture of breathtaking adventure, spectacle, romance. The Golden Arrow. Alive with all the glamour, color, fascination of the fabulous Arabian Nights. The story of a beautiful but unwilling bride. Your illustrious groom, the invincible Prince Basora, has come to escort you to the nuptial ceremonies. Of a villainous vizier. Starring Tab Hunter and lovely Rosanna Podesta, with literally a cast of thousands. You have been chosen by Allah to restore justice here. This is Allah's sign, the star of Damascus. I'm your master, Yamila. You already were, my love. No, I'm the new Sultan of Damascus. See, Princess Kidnapped. Let me go! See, deadly struggle with the fire demons. A city besieged. My army is mobilized just outside the city gate. You and Damascus are now mine. See, war of the flying carpets. New vistas of excitement and enchantment in Technicolor and Technorama. back to the bloody pit i once again bring to you john hudson how are you mr hudson i am doing just dandy as my grandfather would say pert near fine pert near fine that's a that's a very southern phrase that i remember from my youth as well yeah my grandfather is a very southern man well you know you grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Tennessee. These things, uh, they don't they don't have to travel far to really influence no, us. No, no. Mr. Hudson and I are returning to our uh, long-running series of podcasts on the films of Antonio Margariti. And we're doing something strange this time around because this is going to be called the handoff episode. This is the episode where I finally do away with a, a, a stunning dichotomy that really I should have taken care of at least a year, possibly two years ago, which is I have someone else that I podcast with who has essentially been begging to cover Antonio Margariti films to the point where he like wedged his way into this kind of thing. But at the same time, I have so much fun podcasting with Mr. Hudson. For no good reason. I don't know why I have. I don't know I why I said a, that. I, I admitted that. Darn lovable. I mean, I can't. If I had not admitted that in public, I could now. Yeah. I should have thought <laughs> this out. At any rate, now that now that the truth is out and the pants are off, it's really something. Oh. <laughs> we should. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this episode for Mr. Hudson to do one more Margariti film with me. But we're going to also. Well, I will also use the opportunity to have Mr. Adrian Smith, who uh, is the proprietor and writer of the Bloggeriti blog about the films of Antonio Margariti, to also talk about this film in the second half of the show. 
Yeah. I guess he's qualified to take my place, Al. <laughs> he's got I a su- he's got a degree. He's got a master's. I suppose if he's got a doctorate, come in there and I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the joy, well, the joy for you is something we've already started doing this year, which is. I've just decided that it is always best to allow the guest on the show to, as far as it is possible, pick the subject matter. Because if we can both agree on it, that's great. But there comes a point where I'm probably the wrong person because I start going down these weird little roads. And so this year you picked a silent comedy and a TV horror movie from the 70s. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, yeah. And I'm loving that. So I don't feel... uh I don't feel slighted at all. I feel like you found a good niche for me. and Well, it, it allows us to open up the possibilities for different types of films, different things, things I wouldn't necessarily think mm-hmm. of off the top of my head, or even with some real thought, because like I say, I have this tendency to, to not necessarily get in ruts, but to think in terms of, this is what I'm interested in, and, it, and talking about this film will get me to that film, will get me to that film, will get me to that film, and so I'm always trying to plot down the road of like, okay, I want to see where these things, how, how they look in relation to each other. And uh, that's great. I love doing that. Like what, uh, what Troy and I are doing with the uh, 1940s universal horror films, because mm-hmm. we're both enjoying going through the, the, the whole thing. Troy and I've done multiple things like this where we did the, you know, he, he picked out certain themed bunches of Godzilla films and we went through those. And, it, and it's a, it's a question of, what is going to sustain the interest and what is going to also be something that uh, both of us can bring a, a certain level of enthusiasm to. And it, there comes a point where Troy and I both are going to start going through that universal horrors stuff. And there's going to be the occasional film where we're both looking at it and going, okay, this ain't great. <laughs> but it's the next one that got released. You got to do it. <laughs> and you got to do it. So the best shows are the ones where the guest actually wants to talk a lot about mm-hmm. whatever it is. So from now on, you'll be choosing. Although I do think, I think our holiday horror show this year, I got to choose, didn't I? You did. You and did. I've been rethinking. I've been I've been wondering if maybe I, I've been doing a stupid thing and like limiting the show to to a to a more recent film. We'll 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 talk off mic. Well, I, well, I guess we can. I th- I thought the choice you made was pretty good, but if you wanted to go with something else. I, I, I'm still debating with myself, essentially. We'll, we'll yeah. talk later. <laughs> you wound up on some registries for debating with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to put that piece of tape over the camera. <laughs> yeah, see, that's what you got to do. That's, that's the way to save yourself. From, that's right. <laughs> to save yourself from a tubin, <laughs> as they are called now. Anyway, tonight, folks, we take a look at a 1962 Antonio Margariti film called The Golden Arrow. Why did we decide to talk about The Golden Arrow? Well, mainly because Warner Archives has been nice enough to put this sucker out on Blu-ray. And it was cheap. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you you wait for those sales and you get these suckers for 11 bucks. That's right. That's a little hint, folks. That's right. (laughs) 11 bucks. Now, the question does become, how does this movie rate getting to Blu-ray before several other Antonio Margariti films that may be better known? To, a, to some degree, because mm-hmm. there are some movies that he made in the 70s that I would think would probably be much more deserving because they have much more prominence within the, the genre that they're within, like Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye and things like that, where you're going, you know, very colorful, shot-on-location giallo. That's going to draw a lot of eyes. But you know, I'm not going to complain. Yes, of course, hey, I want Wild Wild Planet on Blu-ray. 
And the best they've been able to do yet is a DVD. So everybody, contact Warner Archives and tell them you want Wild Wild Planet on Blu-ray so that I will then be happy. Because really, isn't that what we all want is for Rod to be happy? You should. You should. Yes, I may be the person who thinks that Narcissus looks in the mirror and sees me. It's all about me, people. It's all the fuck about me. Now, now that we've moved on past that. The Golden Arrow is on Blu-ray, and this is a glorious thing. And once you see it on Blu-ray... See, I'd only ever seen this movie on a... It was broadcast a few times on a Turner Classic Movies. Okay. And so I saw it on there. And, you know, that's... I don't know if they had an HD master or not, but I remember thinking that it was a beautiful-looking film and wondering at the time, did they really shoot this on these locations? And it turns out they did, but, you know, watching it on a television screen off TCM did not impart the amazing beauty of this film. And I think that's probably one of the reasons uh, Warner Archives may have uh, decided to put this thing out on Blu-ray because it's a gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful film. It's beautiful color, a lot of on-location uh, on shooting in Egypt and, and some very picturesque places, places that I don't think you can, eat, you can film in any longer. So a lot of things that you're going to see in The Golden Arrow are things that you're probably not really ever going to see in... Uh, very many movies to begin with, and probably not in uh, movies anymore. Um, mainly because you'd have to do a lot of, I think you'd have to do a lot of CGI matting out of the, the modern structures in well, the yeah, background now. That's exactly right. You'd have to get rid of the satellite dishes and the phone lines. <laughs> and everything else, God knows. But uh, the joys of this movie on Blu-ray is that it looks stunning. I mean, this is a beautiful looking movie. But uh, before we go crazy here, let's... Uh, Let's take a quick break. Hear from a few sponsors. I'm kidding. No one pays me to do this shit. Wait a minute. I thought, doesn't everybody who co-hosts pay you? Uh, yes. Do you have an ad you'd like to, for me to play? <laughs> no, I just have to give you $5 to come <laughs> in. <laughs> let's, let's, price has gone up, by the way. Oh, man. Back in a I'll moment. bet Adrian's not going to have to pay $5. It's... <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's a ferner. He has to pay a different tax. It's, That's true. It's, very it's true. Back in a moment, folks. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic, and sometimes not-so-classic, monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, 
and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Noble princes, today I must make a decision, the most important decision of my life. I have to choose from among you three, he who will become my husband. But regardless of whom I choose, the two excluded will be offended. Therefore, Allah must decide for me. I bow to his will. Would you be so gracious as to clarify your ideas for us, princess? Since none of them was able to succeed in the contest of the Golden Arrow, I propose another task. I will not allow myself to be made ridiculous a second time. If my rivals are willing to lower their dignity... I could take offense, illustrious prince. My dignity is just as important as yours. If you're afraid you won't win, you can retire from the contest. We are prepared to submit to any competition to demonstrate our love for the princess. What is the nature of this second contest? Oh, it's very simple. Each one of you must bring me a gift more rare than gold or jewels. Whoever brings me the most worthy object will become my husband. Well, as you would expect for a film that takes place in the Arabian desert, the lead actor is a blonde white guy from the United States. Named Hassan. (laughs) Named Hassan. So, in the realm of things that... uh, Filmmakers would not do anymore because, well, it wasn't a good idea then either. (laughs) One would be casting Tab Hunter as the lead named Hassan in an Arabian adventure. Well, he's so naturally swarthy that. (laughs) Yes, yes, he just he looks he looks so Middle Eastern. It's it's a natural choice to me. I mean, you know, typecasting I guess worked in this case and. Well, it's like an American blonde dude, and the the female lead is an Italian. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh uh, yeah, that's 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 meet in the middle, right? Yeah, yeah it works. It works. Just run with it. Well, uh, Tab Hunter. What do you remember the the first thing you ever saw Tab Hunter in? Do you have any any actual memories of him? Um, I don't remember specifically, but I know that I saw him on you know. Love Boat and you know a lot of yeah. lot of those TV things that he did. Six million dollar man. Six million dollar man. The first thing that I really remember jumping out at me was uh, Polyester. Oh, the John Waters film. Yeah, yeah. yeah cause, he, did, he did a couple things with with the John Waters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was so good in Polyester. That movie's great. <laughs> there was there was a long period of time I thought Lust in the Dust was actually a John Waters joint, but mm-hmm. it, but it, but it's not. Yes, Paul Bartel. I know. I know. And, Love Paul Bartel. Oh yeah, but uh, the uh, the thing about Tab Hunter is the only thing I ever knew about him, really outside of the fact that he was this you know gorgeous looking blonde dude. He I knew that he was like a a, a hunky leading man kind of pinup guy from the fifties. He was like you know one of those good looking cover boys for you know that the, the brought the ladies all mm-hmm. in. And I also knew he was gay. But of course, kept that he kept that under wraps, much like Rock, Rock Hudson for a yep. very long time. And then, the knowing that makes, of course, it automatically makes it more interesting. Uh, but he was always talked poorly of 
by critics. They, 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 you know, it's, it's that thing to a large degree where you're looking at a guy who's who's so handsome, who's you know physically cut, who who's who's really uh, an attractive on-screen presence. And so you immediately they're going to jump to the conclusion this guy can't act. Yeah, we got to hate this guy. Yeah, this is yeah exactly. The the this car, the cards are stacked against him to begin <clears> with <throat> on something like this. And the thing is, everything I've ever seen him in, he's he's perfectly fine. I mean, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't call him an award caliber actor, but at the same time, he's not bad. And in this, this is the kind of movie that his persona is perfectly matched for, other than being, of course, <laughs> from the wrong end of the planet. Uh, he's charming. He's funny. He does everything with a twinkle in his eye in this film, at least. And so if you're going to have a leading man who kind of needs to be charismatic enough to keep everybody attuned to the story, especially when every now and then the story kind of doesn't tell itself effectively, or it kind of skips some detail that might give you a reason for a character doing something, mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a minute. Um He's the kind of guy you want on camera to do this because he's he's capable of doing it. Yeah, and in this movie, he, he's really it really says a lot about that because his voice is dubbed. So yeah. he's it's all of his performance that we're seeing is just the physical part of it, and he's really good. In a lot of ways, this movie can be looked at as a, a kind of a special effects movie too. So one of the things I mean I alluded to it earlier is okay. It's uh, it's mostly shot on location. Um, the, the interiors, of course, were done back in back in Italy on, on sound stages, but all the stuff that's outside on these uh, incredible locations, it's all beautiful. And at the same time, the uh, cinematography is very detailed. There's a lot of matte work. Some of the stuff that you come to expect if you start looking at Antonio Margheriti films, like uh, miniature stuff. Yeah. Uh, De- uh, decent uh, mat mat work, uh, some some really good uh, mats that are that are hiding prob- probable modern stuff in the backgrounds of certain shots and things of that nature. There's a lot of that in this movie, and this Blu-ray shows them off to good effect to the point where there's some shots where even when you're looking at it, it's like watching a great Hammer film when you're looking at it and going, ah, oh, man, that is a beautiful matte painting. I get that same feeling with this, which is there's a certain heightened a heightened level of reality that these films manage to uh, manage to get to something that looked more perfect would be less it'd be less interesting to a degree mm-hmm. and i don't know if that's i don't know if that's because we kind of look back on these movies automatically with a certain bit of bit of nostalgia but i just love the way these special effects that are you know very special for their time but not so special now looking back at them there's a charm to them and there's a beauty to them that i almost I almost love more than than other aspects of the movie that actually worked better at the time. Would have been, would have been at the time the movie came out much more of a reason to go see the movie. Not not that all the special effects are all that particularly great. We'll we'll talk about a couple of them that I it, the the actors are doing their best, but let's just say that the uh, the boomerang arrow effect isn't always the best that it can be. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's see here. The film primarily takes place in, in and around Damascus in the time of the Arabian Nights. And to say that this movie kind of takes bits and pieces from, uh, you know, s- let's let's say half of the uh, Thousand and One Nights mm-hmm. <laughs> tales that were told, uh, that, that'd be a good way to put it. Because there's bits and pieces of this, that, or the other. There's even a little bit of Excalibur thrown in here. Maybe even a little Robin Hood legend kind of tossed in for good measure. Yeah, it's a real mix, mix master of stuff. And sometimes... 
it's it seems a little less coherent. Yes, <laughs> there's a, there there are a couple of moments. There are a couple of moments in the movie where it seems as if uh, maybe we were missing uh, a page of dialogue or at least a, a shot that should have been grabbed <laughs> or somewhere. a reel. I wouldn't feel like a reel, but there is a there is a there does come a point in the movie where I'm. I want to know what the motivation for our main character is, and the movie is not giving us any idea. Mm. It's keeping us... I think it's accidentally keeping us in suspense about his yeah. motivation. <laughs> well, before we get too far with that, though, I do want to say again, this movie looks fantastic. Yes. Um, it's, and it's, I mean, from the opening shots, it looks oh. like just a billion dollars. Oh, and we should say that it's shot very wide. It's a very mm-hmm. widescreen shot film, yeah. which is not something that... I mean, it's not that Margarita didn't do that uh, a lot he did. I mean, Web of the Spider was shot very wide, things like that. But it's a, it's not it's not his standard uh, aspect ratio for shooting. So mm-hmm. and it uh, looks very very lavish. And there's a lot going on. Yeah. In a lot of the shots, you know, when there's a big desert vista, obviously you're just seeing the horse and the sand. But when there's things in like the village marketplace or the the big arena at the beginning, there's a lot going on. And I wish that. It made me wish that some of the other Margarita films that we've seen had a budget like this. This was a massive budget. Uh, apparently, this movie did not make back as much money as they hoped it would, and uh, came pretty close to uh, bankrupting Titanus or Titanus, however the name of the studio is pronounced. It almost it almost bankrupted them. It put them in it put them in uh, red ink for about two years. Apparently, wow. well, they definitely spent some coin on it. You can see it. Just again from the from the opening, it's, it looks like a lot of money was spent on this thing. And, yeah, and of course, anytime you see a lot a lot of these scenes where you see that there are a you know there are dozens of extras, man, extras are expensive. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I that that may seem strange to somebody who's never thought it through, but that means a lot of money has been spent. When you see, you know, in excess of thirty to forty people in a single shot, all those people got paid. <laughs> what you've got to understand is. There's a lot of coordination that goes into that, so that is a big expense for a film is having a lot of people in a shot, which is why one of the things that CGI artists these days are called upon to do quite often is to uh, to add people to shots where there's supposed to be a big crowd because it's cheaper, literally, to have the CGI people do it than it is to hire people mm-hmm. to stand around for a couple of days to be in several shots. Weird, weird world that we're in. Indeed. But... <clears throat> Since this takes place in the time of the Arabian Nights, uh, it, it, you would start to think, ah, so we're going to have... There, there are certain story elements that we're going to have, especially if this is going to start pulling from a lot of the classic tales of this type. And you'd be right about having all of those various pieces in there. But, man, this story really does different things with them. This 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 movie doesn't have a genie. It has three. Mm-hmm. And the genies aren't found in a lamp. That, that'd be stupid. Who would do that? Yeah, who'd believe that? Who'd believe that crap? No, these genies show up because they're somehow... I mean, they seem related to the to the angel character in in the Jimmy Stewart movie. It's Wonderful Life? Yes. That, I mean, because it seemed... That, honestly, they, they seem to come down from the stars in the same way mm-hmm. while having a conversation, much like the one between the angels before that character shows up and starts, you know, making Jimmy Stewart's life miserable. But... I tell you what made me miserable, the music that played behind the genies. <laughs> okay, so... Has there ever been a more annoying piece of music? Let's let's talk about this. Before we discuss the, the, the some of the details of the plot, how much of the comedy in the film worked for you? Not a whole lot. It was, it was about half for me. 
anytime the comedy involved the genies, it was like, eh, you probably got a 25% ratio there. Yeah, you're being charitable. Now, now that I think about it, though, so a lot of stuff with, with Tab Hunter, That's that the works. funny stuff. Yeah. When you're, when you're dealing with Tab Hunter, the funny stuff that goes on with him is the funny stuff that's actually funny to me. Uh, because what's going on there is it's, it's fun dialogue stuff that Hunter, Tab, Tab Hunter, who's, that was not his real name, Arthur Clem, hmm. K-E-L-M. That's a weird name, but we'll call him Tab Hunter because that's a better name. <laughs> that's a really good name. Yeah, I mean, Tab Hunter or Diet Fresca. I mean, like, <laughs> one or the other. I, he's, he's, we'll, Diet Fresca Hunter. How's that? That sounds good. But the he claimed in his autobiography that he actually rewrote some of the dialogue because it's, it's one of those situations where you're dealing with a script that was written in one language, roughly translated into English. And so you, as an English, native English speaker, you're looking at it going, okay, I've got to do something with this because nobody can say these words in the same order that they have here, have here on the page. So he apparently felt, you know, I'll do that. And then, of course, his voice gets dubbed later on anyway. But at least that means that to a degree, some of the humor that I actually enjoy in the movie may have come out of not necessarily the way the script was written, but by the way, Tab Hunter decided, let's do it this way and it'll flow better, or let's do it this way and at least we'll get a laugh out of something that's said. Um, like I say, that's the stuff, that's the humor that works in the movie. Yeah, and his he had some good little physical moments as well, like at the beginning where he's, you know, his pulling on the golden oh, the arrow bowstring is, yeah. is supposed to be just a, you know, signal to ro- start the rob, you know, the big robbery, start the, robbery yeah. the kidnapping. But instead, it, the bowstring actually works for him. And the look on his face oh, is that yes. happens. He is shocked. He's like, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. And there's a lot of little bits like that that are really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the bow, there's a contest that's been announced for uh, for suitors to come from far and wide to see who is worthy to wed the beautiful Jamila and become the next Sultan of Damascus. Now, uh, Jamila, we should we should note, is played by Rosanna Podesta. Now, Miss Podesta is quite a, a fetching lass, and uh, one that uh, was in a, a number of pretty interesting films, probably in the 60s primarily, really. She got her start in the 50s. She was in uh, Ulysses in the 50s with the, the Kirk Douglas movie. Mm-hmm. Really well known because she played Helen in the Hollywood film Helen of Troy that was produced in Italy as well. So that's the kind of that's the thing that kind of stamped her as uh, an actress to be in these you know sword and sandal peplum films. So she ends up in things like The Slave of Rome, uh, Fury of the Pagans, and then this. Uh, she was also in Sodom and Gomorrah, but. Uh, apparently, I would guess at least that Margariti enjoyed working with her enough that she also turns up in uh, the Virgin of uh, uh, the Virgin of Nuremberg, also known as Hara Castle, for Margariti uh, the next year. But pursuant to something that you and I were talking about just a little while earlier, Miss Miss Podesta also shows up in a film from 1983 named Hercules. Ah, yes, yes, folks, that would be the Hercules film starring Lou Ferrigno, the first of the two. Hercules film starring Lou Ferrigno, made by Luigi Cosi, or Louis Coates. <laughs> a genius under any name. Now, I have a lot of love for those for those Hercules movies. Never going to claim that they're good. But I will, I will claim that they are entertaining as hell. They are fantastic. And I will tell you right now that 
the fact that those two movies are on these are on spectacular Blu-rays from Scream Factory and Wild Wild Planet is not <laughs> is another thing that really irks me. <laughs> well, it does make you pause for just a moment and go, think, "What? Do what now? <laughs> How did this? Huh? How did we get to that?" But uh, yes, Miss Podesta plays Hera in the uh, in the 1983 Hercules film. I guess I guess she just had a face made for peplum. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, she's gorgeous, and you know, if you're gonna play Helen of Troy, you you know, yeah, you're doing something right. Yeah, you were you were blessed by the birth of gods in some way. Who are you? We are your humble liberators, Prince. Prince, I'm afraid you've made a mistake. Maybe. No, there is no mistake. Do you know who your father was? Everyone wants to know who my father was. You have been chosen by Allah to restore justice here. This is Allah's sign, the star of Damascus. The vizier Bakhtiar assassinated Karim the Just to gain power over Damascus. And Karim was my father? Yes. That is why Allah only permitted you to shoot the golden arrow. You'll have to become master of Damascus and you'll restore justice. Then why did it slip out of my hand? Because you wanted to use it to love. You must forget all about having been a bandit if you want to regain the golden arrow and win Yamila. You know where it is? It's many miles away, on top of the great mountain where the sun is born every morning. Let's go. Immediately. That's the way out. Lead on. Far. So the contest that's uh, supposed to take place before the entire assembled populace of the city and consists of proving one's worth by mastering Allah's gift to the Sultan, which is an ebony bow and a magical golden arrow, which, when shot, returns to the shooter. Which sounds a whole lot like a way to commit suicide, but that's not how that works out. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering how they were going to visualize this when they talked about it at first, and I was like... <laughs> I remember thinking, I've seen this movie. Wait a minute, how does he not die when he shoots the arrow? Mm-hmm. Hold on a minute. Okay, yeah, yeah, now. The only one who is chosen by Allah himself as the rightful heir may pull back the bow and shoot the arrow. Well, three princes arrive to partake in the contest. There's always three of these fuckers. I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. Three princes, three genies. What the hell is the deal with this number three? Is a magic number, I It guess. is a magic number. Well, a man and a woman had a little baby. <laughs> that makes three. Three in the family. <laughs> Well, all three of them fail, which is just as well because, uh, you know, Jamila, the, the the princess, she's got no interest in any of the three of them anyway. Uh, especially not the, the macho asshole who's <laughs> who's the general guy who apparently is, you know, slaughtered, you know, half mm-hmm. of the planet. Uh, well, disguised hanging out in this crowd is the bandit leader Hassan, played by Tab Hunter. Diet uh, Fresca. <laughs> Diet Fresca Hunter. Uh, he and his crew have arranged themselves among the crowd for some quick thievery, but not before he plays out one of his more daring schemes. He throws off his robes, and uh, he and uh, some of his followers walk with Hassan, and he presents himself to the sultan, begging forgiveness for his late arrival and calling himself the Prince of the Island of Fire. Uh, Jamila is instantly smitten with him because, once again, he's Tab Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sultan 
allows him to uh, step up and compete after the three fail. Of course, uh, the three princes, we should say, they don't even, they can't even bend the bow. So clearly this is something we're going on. Well, Hassan is set up with his people that as soon as he draws back to, to, to try to take a shot with this, with this bow, that's their signal to attack. They're going to try to rob everybody there that they can and try to make off with the princess. Because, hey, ain't nothing like a kidnapping to make sure that you know that this is the hero of our picture. That's right. At least, at least in the Arabian Night stories, I it's, guess. It's Luke and Laura all over again. Oh, God. The General Hospital reference. That's a General <laughs> Hospital reference, folks. And well, if you're too young for that, you're younger than most of us. I'm just trying to keep it current, you know, for the kids. For the kids. <laughs> we'll reference an obscure storyline on a defunct soap opera. Yay. <laughs> just trying to show off how manly I am. Oh, of course. Didn't everybody watch that? It wasn't just a, a general sausage fest of people sitting around a television wondering what was going on with those dastardly Luke and Laura. With those poor people, the damn mm-hmm. things that keep happening to them. <sighs> well, as the crowd watches in awe, the arrow disappears from the target. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Actually, he, he, he steps up there. And uh, he goes to bend the bow, and uh, he the, the, you, you could cut the surprise with a giant scimitar because he has no <laughs> idea that this is going to work. And the arrow flies straight through uh, all these, uh, these cool little uh, circular hoops mm-hmm. and straight to the target. Boom, dead center. So everybody freaks out, and then the arrow disappears from the target and flies back to Hassan's outstretched hand. And this is where we get the detail of how it doesn't kill him because it, it just becomes a, a, a kind of animated special effect and he puts out his hand and it's there in his hand. And he goes, boop, boop. <laughs> exactly. So let's just say that the, uh, the arrow coming back to him, sometimes it works better than others. It looks better than others, I should say. But I kept wanting him to like use this, this bow and arrow to like start slaughtering his enemies, and he—I guess he's just not that kind of guy. Tab yeah, don't play like that. He's too nice. Uh, well, we we get we get them robbing the place. We get them making off with the the princess. Once this starts to go down, the arrow seems to have a mind of its own and flies off into the distance. And this is the first moment in the film where, like, we need a little bit of information here because then the arrow is just gone for a while. And I'm glad you said that because. I watched this thing twice in the last week, yeah. and I kept thinking, did I doze off? What did I miss here? And apparently, it's I just didn't. not there. It's yeah. just not there. Okay. What I wanted for what I wanted was tab was tab Hunter after this thing leaves his hand to go what the hell, and then realizing okay, all hell is broken loose. I can't pay attention to that right mm-hmm. now. That we needed that shot, but we don't have it. So this is what we end up with. I don't know whether to blame Margariti for not getting that getting that scene in the can so that they could use it. Or if it's the editor making the choice that you don't need that, fuck it, go on. Kids won't care. Kids won't care. Well, then, they kidnap the princess. They get back to their uh, de- you know, their desert hideout, which is you know, basically hanging out in an oasis in the desert. Idea is to ransom her because they figure the sultan will pay any cost to have her back. He goes in, uh, Tab goes in, and he talks with the princess for a while. Uh, and and it, it goes about as well as a situation like this would probably go. And then that night, after he's forbidden the rest of the men to talk about to talk with her, uh, he bundles her up, unti- unties her, bundles her off, and they ride off into the night alone. And this is that moment in the film where you're this—it's it's the, it's the 
you're wondering what's his motivation. Why are they doing this? Why is he setting her go, putting her on a horse, and then riding off with her? And it's like, is he screwing over his buddies? Is he backstabbing all, all his, his cohort of cronies? Uh, is he in love with the girl? Is this... Uh, because as soon as we actually have a conversation between the two of them, it becomes clear that he's decided, oh, no, I'm going to take her back to the Sultan. I can't, I can't really do this. But what was going through my mind is, is this still a backstab of his buddies? Because he figures, if I take her back then I'll get a reward for bringing her home and the hell with all my friends, all to the good for me. But the film, unfortunately, figures that we're dealing with younger people, mm-hmm. so why complicate things? And we just pick up the information as we go along that, no, 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 he's kind of really attracted to this woman, so I, I would love for the film to have made it much more clear what it seemed like was going on, which was it was... Half of you know half a dozen of one and six of the other, which is like you know maybe I'll get lucky with this chick because it seems like I got some charm with her and I could keep all the money for myself if I take them take her back on my own. So this is kind of a, this could be a win win, <laughs> but the film doesn't unfortunately lay that out clearly for us, and that that unfortunately is is a is a, it's a detriment to me as far mm-hmm. as as far as the plotting of the film is concerned. I'm assuming that's another portion of the movie where you were like, okay, so what is his motivation? Yeah. Yeah, it seems, it seems, it seems like a pretty obvious one. Well, at some point during all of this, the princess calls out to Allah for help, and lo and behold, much like in It's a Wonderful Life, yay, Allah responds and sends down three idiots. I'm sorry, uh, three genies. I wanted to say the three stooges, because it's pretty fucking close to that at times. That would have been better. That would have been interesting. I, but although, no. not, not Joe Dorita. No. Well, no, nothing. No. no. Now, you, you did skip just a little because the reason that she praised Allah is that when Tab brings her back, he gets captured. Yeah. He's recognized as the bandit chief and is captured, which leads to... How, how could they recognize him? Would it be the blonde hair? I, I Possibly. Probably. Possibly. But that that is actually my favorite shot in the movie is when he's captured. Because, if you remember, there's like this perfect overhead shot, and all the guards surround him him with their swords out, so that he's just like surrounded by like a hundred guys with swords in a perfect circle. It reminds me a lot of a a, a shot that Margariti would do later on. In In Vengeance, yes, exactly. That's where I was going with that. So I thought the exact same thing, that that's what it reminded me of. It's, It's one of the, this is the first time I've noticed that shot. Uh, set up reoccurring mm-hmm. in one of his movies. And so now it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I wonder if it's a question of having the money or the time or the equipment, essentially, mm-hmm. because you've got, you know, you've got to have a crane to be able to get that thing up high enough to be, you know, so that you're not casting a shadow over right. what you're shooting. And uh, in this, obviously, they had the money because there's more, there's more money being spent on this than in most movies that Margariti would make in the in the 1960s, even the even the special effects uh, laden science fiction films. But the uh, you're right, it's, it's it's such a great image, and like I say, it immediately brings to mind that opening scene in Vengeance. Yeah, we are totally on the same page. I, I even had that in my notes that it was this exact same thing. So we get these three genies, and uh, one of them doesn't seem like a total idiot. But he's also the one who has the least amount of dialogue, <laughs> which is kind of sad. And just out of curiosity, what would be the plural of genie? Would it just be genie? Genie or genie? Genie? Genus? Genus? Now, see, that would be, that's Latin. That's, that, that's not going to work. 
Yeah. Well, it's definitely definitely not geniuses. So no, not in this case. (laughs) Leave that out in the cold. That's not going to work. So the genies come along and, in a pretty cool sequence, actually bust poor old Tab. I can't even. I can't call him a son. I'm sorry. I just can't call him a son. He's definitely a Tab. He's a. (laughs) He's a Fresca. They bust him out of the prison. And the prison sequence is really cool too. Yeah. um, Because it's shot really nice, and there's some great colors in there. You know, that's one thing this movie's just bursting with, is with color. And there's a lot of nice color work in the dungeon. But he's down there to die. Yeah. And it's a very Batman 66 sort of death <laughs> trap. <laughs> in a way, that's true. Where it's a, it's a pit with crocodiles that slowly fill with water. So they get higher and higher. So eventually they'll come up out of the pit and eat tab. It's, it's, it's a very slow, you're going to dread this happening and then you'll be painfully devoured by critters mm-hmm. not bad i'll admit but yeah you're right it is a it's it's four years before batman 66 <laughs> but it's the same thought process yep. exactly well i do like the genies show up and they agree to help a son uh regain his throne they explain to him that there's a reason he doesn't remember his childhood and he doesn't remember his parents and was raised by a bunch of bandits because unbeknownst to him much like excalibur <laughs> These are the ge- these genies are also Excalibur, along with being the Three Stooges, and they explain to him that hey, by the way, what that arrow was was Excalibur. I mean, uh, uh, the thing telling you that you're actually the you're supposed to be the Sultan, you're born to be the Sultan, da 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 da, and to regain his throne, he must forego all his previous thieving ways and lead a good life, and they will help him. He's like, oh well, this this sounds like a good idea. They also explain that when Hassan tried to rob the people at the beginning of the film, that's why. The Golden Arrow flew off because it rebelled at this criminal act and fled to the top of the mountain where the sun is born. So they've got to go there and get that arrow, which will allow him to prove to to the entire world that he is supposed to be the sultan. So this works out, right? I like this. Makes sense. This is all good. This sounds exactly like what, you know, I'm expecting hobbits and shit to show up now. This is working. (laughs) It's all good. Hobbits and shit. (laughs) New from Peter Jackson. (laughs) The breakfast cereal you've been waiting for. It's <laughs> <Hobbits and> shit. <laughs> the marshmallow toes. <laughs> so he's he says that's cool. Let's do this. They uh, start to leave the city, but of course he can't leave without uh, finding Jamila and uh, getting getting a kiss off of her and explaining to her that he's escaped and what his plans are and things of this nature. This tends to piss the genies off just a little bit, which is you know about what you'd expect. I mean, they're mm-hmm. genies. Come on. Uh, the his first the the so he, basically they're along the way they're kind of putting him through certain trials and he kind of fails this one because he kind of disobeys them to begin with it doesn't listen to what they're saying well he's kind of a prick to them I mean he it's really like is. these three guys just got him out of a certain death and like, come on we gotta go oh I don't think I should want to do that I <laughs> I don't think that's a particularly great idea let me go over here and try to get wet. <laughs> Well, finally, Hassan sets off across the desert, uh, stumbles across some ruins uh, as his water runs out. Because the genies say, "Okay, you you aren't you aren't adhering to the to the the whole plan we set out before you," and so they just leave. And so he decides he's going to have to he, he he escapes on his own, and it's him in a desert and on a horse with no name. You know, mm-hmm. pretty much screwed, <laughs> no water. And I love this is one of my favorite tropes that I never understand, and and. These kind of movies, anytime they're in the desert, guy gets his canteen. Yeah. In this case, it's his his bag. It's like a little flask. 
guess it tries to drink and it's empty. So he just throws it away. I know. When we were watching this the other night, Beth said the same thing. Like, well, you might want to hold on to that in case you find some water. You don't. Yeah. What, what? You're screwed now. It's like, well, <laughs> great. Because are you just going to live where the water is now? Stupid tab. <laughs> tab is such a tab. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord. Well, at this point, the genies show back up. Once he finds... Uh, once he... Uh, the genies are watching him from the top of a palm tree, and uh, one of them drops a pineapple onto a traveling merchant who bemoans his fate to Allah. The genie unravels one of his carpets, and, tur- and it turns out to be a flying carpet, telling him to sell it, telling the this this uh, traveling merchant, uh, sell it to someone who will use it to do good. By the time they get back to viewing Hassan, because they've been checking him out on their little... Their little, uh, might as well call it a, you know, Arabian Nights iPad. The, the, not bad. Not bad. Right? The, the, <laughs> a stream of water pours into a pool uh, uh, in this, uh, oh yeah, the, this is where he, he this is this is some, boy, do we need some smoother editing here. Mm-hmm. Because we go, suddenly Tab is just in these caves. Yeah, he's gone from being outside in the sun to in a cave. To in a cave. But I have to say, I'm not unhappy with this because this sequence in this film... Oh, yeah. If, if, if I wanted to talk about nothing else in this movie, I want to talk about this sequence. We are so on the same page with this. Holy shit is this sequence in the film fucking awesome. Because, mm. wow, I hope they paid these guys a lot of money. He's in he's in this cave. There's 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 fire. He, he's, follow, he's following uh, along through these caves. And a stream of water pours into a pool. But instead of drinking from it, Hassan parts the water and steps through. And he meets the Queen of Fire who informs him that the cost of his curiosity is an eternity of slavery in this realm. Now, he didn't really like that a lot. So he says, no, I'm going to have to cut out, ignoring her orders to stop. And then she sicks her firemen on him. And these are several men. I mean, like, in one shot, in one shot at least, there's at least, there's, I think there's five of them yeah. at one time. And I was trying to look and see, were any of these maybe just like a mannequin or something? But no, they're all moving. They're all moving. Yeah. These are people. I'm telling you, people, these are real stuntmen doing full suit body burn stunts for long stretches of this sequence. And he's, these firemen are uh, are uh, attacking him and keeping him from leaving. And it is one of the most visually fascinating sequences in this movie. And my God, it had to be hard to shoot. Oh, I know. And there's fire all around. Yeah. But they, you know, they couldn't see anything. And Obviously everything has not. to be choreographed. And they're just, like you said, they're in these thick, Full burn. Yep. It's really something to see. I've never seen anything quite like it, to be honest. It's, uh, I can, I, I'll tell you this. I think he was aiming to kind of replicate something like that later on when he did Yor. Because uh, when uh, Yor finally could, gets to the cave where, uh, it's not the same cave, but it might as well have been. When, when he gets to the cave where he finds the woman who uh, looks a lot like him in Yor. And there, you know, there's people frozen in ice. Mm-hmm. This is where you, this is where it suddenly you suddenly realize, oh, this is a science fiction movie. He's attacked by uh, some. Remember, they've got they've got they've got a flaming sword, right? In that sequence in Yor, and it kind of reminded. I was kind I was kind of like, oh, he's he's kind of alluding. It's like I don't think he had the money to like set a bunch of stuntmen on fire in Yor, but he's aiming for the same kind of feel and the same attitude there, same atmosphere. Let's put it that way. But I gotta say, it's the coolest sequence in the film, but I love the fact that 
once again, when the genies show up and he escapes, they once again, we, we just cut to them back out of the desert. And there's never, never, there's never a shot of them, you know, like coming out of the cave. There's them in the cave and then saying, okay, we're going to leave the cave now. And now we're in the desert. And it's like, well, now there's a little bit, isn't, isn't that the sequence where he's like, I didn't come in this way. And they said, right. oh, we're going out this way. And yeah, but there, but there's no shot of them emerging from well, that's the cave. That's true. Ever. And one other point to make here is that um, this is the first time of a couple where Tab, who is just moments ago, <laughs> I can kiss my bride to be, be gone, genies. And the First woman that shows up. He's oh, yeah. slipping her the tongue. He's all over the Queen of Fire. <laughs> Little tab tongue going down. <laughs> he's uh he's got a he's got a roving penis, is what it would be what it boils down to. <laughs> Somewhere in the background, Anthony Perkins is shaking his head. <laughs> going, stupid fucker. Tab, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that was that was interesting to find out that they were in a relationship yeah. for some, a number of years. Well, before we get to before we we're going into way too much detail detail here, and we should probably yeah we probably not need to do pick so. up the space a little. I do enjoy the fact that the he and the genies then get to this uh, this area that uh, is they filmed this shot that well they filmed this sequence uh, with the actors in this real place in the desert of, deserts of Egypt where there are those and it, you've probably seen photos of this. I know I know I've seen other places uh, other films that have shot sequences here where there are these. Ancient columns, these these uh, these Egyptian steps. Uh, the the actual location, it's I forget the name of it in Egypt, but it's it's something that you you may have seen if you've seen enough movies shot in Egypt. Part of the upshot of what goes on here is that uh, Tab Hunter manages to uh, get on the wrong side of a greedy magician. Let's just say that some of these giant stone columns get knocked over, but of course we're in the we're in the realm of Margariti magic here because it's a whole lot of these wonderful little miniatures which look great as always yeah yeah now it's it's i will say that it's uh it's one of the least effective but still really really cool sequences because it's very hard for them to match these miniatures yeah. to the to the real locations because primarily because of how bright the real locations are there's this beautiful bright sunlit places <clears throat> and so the the shots don't completely match and you kind of have to give the film a little there because they're really working overtime with these miniatures to do the best that they can. And it's pretty some pretty cool stuff, uh, getting this obelisk knocked out of the way and getting away from this uh, this uh, kind of evil magician. This film, in a lot of ways, is a series of set pieces, kind of like you were sitting around the fire at an oasis being told a, you know, a, a long rambling tale by someone who's Trying to trying to entertain a large group of people, and that really is the feel of this. The feel of this, a whole lot like uh, you know other Arabian Nights films that that would have the same kind of structure, which is we have this overarching story where you know he's got a you know when the when you know going go and get uh, go and get the sword. I mean the arrow, mm -hmm. and win the princess and claim claim his throne. Well, you're talking about the miniatures and the special effects. And this is probably a good spot to bring up some oh, of the, the other effects that are in the movie. Um, one little touch that I thought worked really well, the shots of the flying carpets taking off yeah, and yeah, landing. Yeah. I'm still not quite sure how they did it. You see this carpet come up off the ground, and I guess they had it on a forklift or something, but I don't know how they did it, and it was it looked really nice. I'm going to assume, and they show it in different ways. Mm -hmm. There's the There's the usual way that you show... A man can fly, which is you know you just 
shoot it, shoot the the people on the flying carpet as a as a as a plate, right? That then gets projected onto uh, a background sequence of the sky or whatever. That you know, you you essentially combine these two different film elements. But uh, some of the some of the other stuff, it looks like. Uh, like when we're following him around, it's like it, I think it's the it's like mounted on a crane or forklift forks out yeah. in front of the camera. It looks like it, and there's a couple shots where it's shot from above, and you see it start to come up off the ground. Yeah, yeah, and that's really impressive looking. Even even today, it's impressive looking. Well, I think that they knew that that was going to be kind of a money shot. Where if it's like if you're doing this kind of story and you've got a flying carpet in it, you've got to find ways to make it believable to mm-hmm. fool the eye and so they go out of their way to show at least three or four different versions of how to, how you're you know, to give you different looks at it so that they edit them together and it's fooling it's fooling your eye because you're seeing all these different visions of it from above from behind from in front from a from a from a distance up in the sky, which is like I say, the easiest way to the easiest form of these shots. But by combining them all, using all these different techniques, it, it just it just makes it feel more organic. It makes it feel like you're actually seeing this mm-hmm. thing turn into a flying carpet. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, some of those work pretty well. And then there's another pretty fun little sequence where Tab has been captured by his old bandit buddies, and they're mad at him yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons. So they're going to burn him alive. And then the genies show up, and suddenly all these flaming logs start flying all over the place. And yeah. And it's kind of cool, again, because there's, like, actual flaming logs hitting people in the head. <laughs> and it's one of those cases where the Blu-ray doesn't do it favors at that point, because some of the shots you can see the wires pretty plainly. Yeah. And the others Cause it, are... Because we are in, we're yeah. on Blu-ray here now. So yeah, it's high def. So you, you got to, you know, cut them a little slack on that. But then a lot of the other shots of the wires are... You, you can't see anything at all, which made me think... That something else. Ah, wow. Well, okay, what, what would that be? It could possibly be an invisible special effects chimp. <laughs> special effects chimp. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonder, wonder when you were going to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Ah, Adrian better keep the invisible chimp going. Yeah, I don't think he's going to, and I'm going to pray that he does not. Well, get him well, on the phone. <laughs> get him on the phone. <laughs> well, of course, as you might expect, after all these different adventures... And, and I love the fact that this, there's, a, there's so much that goes on in this movie, and it still clocks in at around 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's this big Arabian adventure with all these wild set pieces and all these really cool special effects sequences. And it's just, it's beautiful to look at, and it's about an hour and a half. Everything's cool. We don't, you know, we, it doesn't have to be three hours. It doesn't have to be this some ridiculous big thing. And it works out pretty effectively. I was just curious... I don't know that I'm necessarily like the biggest fan of Arabian Night stories. I enjoy them when I see them, but there's such an odd little niche of adventure fiction that it's never been it's, it's never been like a big part of my either my reading or my movie watching. I enjoy them when they come along, but I never go and seek them out. So the only reason that I really sought this out was because it was made by Antonio Margheriti. Mm-hmm. I I really enjoy this movie. I don't think it's great. But there's so much good stuff in it that the, the the various really good pieces kind of give me a lot of goodwill toward it. That, like I say, some of the some of the the story jumps, some of the the missed opportunity to more more smoothly tell the story or to provide us with the motivation for the various characters, especially Tab Hunter's character. The the, the fact that those are skipped over a little bit that's it's a little jarring at times. Uh, and, and, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the freaking 21st century, sure. for God's sake, it's, a, it's, it's, we know so much about how these films get made in the first place and how the pieces fit together 
that I find myself not really feeling like, oh, okay, so that's how they cheat us or that's how they, they do this so that it fools our eye. I just kind of get really happy watching these kind of things because I know how I know what the technique is and I'm just impressed that, that he uses the technique so effectively. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just wondered, I mean, did you, uh, you know, do you go out of your way for these kind of movies? I don't think, I don't think they're not really. Um, they're, I'm kind of like you. I don't avoid them. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't just think, Oh wow, I've got to see another one of these. I think my favorite one actually is a thousand one erotic nights with Annette Haven. <laughs> Have you seen that? <laughs> No, no, I've not. It has a full story. It does, and it's actually available. I know you'll be stunned at this. Huh. The Vinegar Center has done an extras-laden special edition Blu-ray. Really? They have, including a slipcover. Folks, you're missing my shocked face. It's the same as my no-shit face. <laughs> yes, it's yes. a good movie. <laughs> it's Alibaba and the 40 penises. <laughs> I don't think there are 40. That may be a gay porn film. I'm not positive. That probably is yeah, a gay could porn be, film. It probably is. Either, either that or it's 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 definitely an orgy party. I don't know. It's an orgy film of some sort. Yeah. yeah now that I say that out loud, of course there's probably been a porn movie made that mm-hmm. was just an orgy film that involved being dressed in, dressed in freaking Alibaba costumes, for God's sake. We need to look this up. Google that, and I'll bet you won't have any viruses. Yeah, yeah I'll bet you. I'll tell you what. You look it up, and I will just giggle while you do so. While, while everything I own goes goes down the toilet. <laughs> well, tell me. What, what, do, what, what, do you, what do you think of this film? What, did you? I enjoyed it enough. It was one of the lesser Margariti films that I've seen. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Just because it, was, it still has some, some fun in it. There were also some, some moments where it was like, oh, this is a little bit of a slog at this point. And, <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, it was it was fun enough. I'd give it probably a five. I, I, I was torn between a five and a six. And the, the more I go back through it and think about the impressive nature of the, the, the set piece sequences, the, mm-hmm. one, you know, the, the one in the cave and the, the miniature stuff, um, Granted, this, the things that keep it from being, you know, a seven are, you know, the, the humor that doesn't work and the, the rough uh, the rough storytelling patches, the rough patches that you know, where they needed to get across a little bit more information about what's going on. It's a movie that gets by primarily, I think, for us today on its sheer beauty, the charm of its lead, and the fact that it's really just a fun story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's one that... Uh, it has a lot of good pieces that fit together okay, but you wish they fit together without quite so much work jamming the various pieces together, you know, because there's some really some rough patches. And maybe if you want to put it in the terms of a puzzle, maybe there's some missing pieces. Possibly. Yeah. And there's a few too many pieces with that genie theme music in there. <laughs> I'll be honest, overall, though, I like the rest of the score. The rest of the score was good. It was just yeah. anytime they would show up in that... Uh, it's yeah. it, it's bad. It's it's yeah. so wacky and whimsical, but it's a beautiful movie. Oh, it is! My it's gorgeous. Goodness, is this a beautiful film? Yeah. There's there. It, it's clear why they decided to put this on Blu-ray. This this really really benefits from being in high def. It's mm-hmm. beautiful to look at, and you can almost get lost in Tab's eyes. He is dreamy. He is dreamy as hell. It's that Middle Eastern swarthiness. <laughs> It always gets me. (laughs) Okay. Mr. Hudson, thank you very much for talking with me about this film. We'll be talking to you again very soon as we do the 
the uh, holiday horrors episode with Troy mm-hmm. here in uh, I guess a few weeks. We have to we have to schedule. Yeah, that, it's coming we? up here pretty soon, and it sounds like we're, we've got a little bit of a controversy brewing over your choice. Well, I think I may end up. I think you're. I think you're right. I'll, I think I'll stick with my initial choice because I mean, uh, I mean, I think that you for next year you'll you'll either you or Troy choose it next year. So it's. You know, it's. I figure. I have the feeling we'll go probably kind of go old school with you guys. So I'll I'll keep the more current yeah. film for this. Well, I already show. know what my next choice is going to be whenever it comes around. So oh lord, don't want to know. Oh, I don't think you'll hate it. But I already you know you don't think I'll hate it. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> I don't think you'll hate it. But I um. I, there's one that I've already decided. That's we've got to talk about this movie. All so. right. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much and. Uh, in the new year, start thinking about the movies you want to talk about here on the podcast, man. Thousand and One Erotic Nights. Non-porno. No porno. Oh, man, that's going to make it a little tougher. Porno, I can only watch in five to ten minute increments. <laughs> you need to understand that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'm sure I'll think of something. No, I, yeah, it I actually agree. is kind of a challenge because... Um, there's so much I'd like to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And it's like it's tough to narrow it down. So, we can stay with TV movies for a while and talk Killdozer. Well, I think we need to break it up just a okay. little. All right, all right. But just, yeah, that that Killdozer will be rumbling its way down <laughs> down the pike eventually. Cool, cool. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been, it, this whole margarita thing actually has been a blast. Is a guy I did not know very much about at all. We've been doing before this for we years. started, Ooh. and I've. I've learned a lot and had a blast doing it, so I'll be looking forward to seeing what Adrian comes up with with you. (laughs) Just thank you for indulging me, man. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. All right. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also, on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. It's incredible that in spite of all our advice, he still doesn't understand. Will you stop? They're my friends. Fine friends for a sultan to have. Once a friend, always a friend. Now, granted, you helped me, and I appreciate it, but you're never satisfied. When I steal, it's wrong. When I give something away, it's worse. It's your own fault. It's always my fault, but people make mistakes. Not rulers. Rulers, too, I think. The devil with rulers. I'll do what I think is right for me. Very well. That means you'll have to continue the journey alone. Won't I see you again? Only when you recover the golden arrow. That is, if you're able to. Friends! Well, on the line, I have Adrian Smith, or Dr. Adrian Smith, from across the Atlantic. We are uh, here with this great man, and I say great man advisedly, to discuss another Antonio Margariti film. Uh, this is going to be the uh, 
uh, for, we're, we're using this, uh, Adrian, as the handoff episode. I've already talked with uh, my buddy Hudson about this film, and this is going to be his last Antonio Margariti podcast for the show. From now on, I'm going to be at his mercy as I'm going to allow him to choose the films that he and I cover on the show. But you and I, you and I, will will rumble on down the road doing Antonio Margariti films because uh, I think you and I have this bizarre passion. I uh, I love the fact that you continue to keep up the Antonio Margariti blog. Um, yeah, well, you say keep up. I mean, I must, I'm the first to admit it's a, I think the last entry I did was two months ago and that was just a post that I'd, I'd got some new posters. <laughs> um, hey, that, that, that's good though. Yeah. I, I, any, anything, anything like that is good. Remember, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Margariti has passed away and those of us who are fans must, must keep the flame alive however we can. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, this year has been, as we all know, a bit of a strange one and it's made me busier than normal and the blog has taken a bit of a hit on that, I'm afraid. But, but it's still there and I'm, I'm still going to keep going with it. Excellent, excellent, because you have access to a lot more kind of, uh, shall we say, uh, academic information than I would over here. And you've actually, uh, on the on occasion, you've actually been able to talk to some of the people involved in making some of these movies. Uh, sadly, that is not true of the film we are discussing today, The Golden Arrow from 1962. Uh, just really quickly, uh, was the, uh, the Blu-ray release of it, was that the first time you've been able to see the movie? Yeah. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it was never released in the UK, so um, it's not one that I'd I'd seen before. And I th- and I know I could probably have found a copy online if I'd really wanted to, but there are so many Margariti films to write about and find mm-hmm. that I don't normally go to that bigger journey to try and find the movies. I figure eventually they'll come out onto Blu-ray, and if I've got a few that I I have got a few on Blu-ray that I still haven't put on the blog, so. I'm not running out of decent copies of his films just yet. Cool, cool. But yeah, I hadn't I hadn't seen this one before, and it is really fun. It turned out to be well. I, I originally saw it broadcast on Turner Classic Movies over here several years ago, and uh, mm. was really impressed with it then. Even though it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the spectacular high def version that we have now. It was still one of those things where you can you can look at it even in a in a lower grade you know, lower definition version and see that this is, this is something special, uh, especially the fact that they really had money to make this movie, which is a bit of a shock for a Margariti film at this period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are extras and everything like crowd scenes. <laughs> yes. Good. Extras. That's something that I, I keep emphasizing to people is anytime you see a crowd scene where there are more than 50 people, somebody spent money. <laughs> so, Especially yeah. in a period piece, and these guys are all in uh, all in costumes. Nary a twentieth century wristwatch in sight. Yeah, I mean, I'm fairly sure they would have just got these all out of the wardrobe from the other three or four hundred Peplum films being made in the studio at the same time. But uh, but yeah, no, it is good. There's a lot of good attention to. Uh, the background detail, but anyway, I'm sure we're going to get into it. Well, that's one of the things I'd like to touch on first, which is uh, while this could, I guess, broadly fall into the the sword and sandals genre that was pretty darn big at night, at the time they made this in the early '60s. Uh, it really is different in so many ways because it is a kind of you know Arabian Nights, you know, uh, Thousand One Nights tales. Kinds yeah. of kind of thing, and so we're talking, you know, Shahrazad and and that kind of thing, and so it does stand out 
because there weren't that many of those kinds of films being made at the time, especially because I guess it would be a little bit more expensive. You know, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be the the easiest or fastest thing to make. But um, if you look back, there are around that time there there were a few types of this movie being made. Uh, in 1961, one of the guys who was was credited as writer on this. Uh, wrote the screenplay for uh, the the 61 version of The Thief of Baghdad, which is uh, mm-hmm. uh, an Italian film that uh, uh, starred Steve Reeves, <laughs> which, which of course points quickly to the fact, to, ju- to just how close in, in approximation these films are to the... Uh, to the the Hercules type films, the the peplum films, but the uh, mm. the the idea of doing you know Thief of Baghdad or or Thousand and One Nights type, type tales, I mean they're they're in the they're in the same boat, and uh, I think it's interesting that often you'll find the screenwriters for films of this type and the peplum films they were the same people they were just essentially uh, changing some of the window dressing, changing some of the detail work and some of the costumes around and kind of building the same scenarios in a slightly different milieu. And I think that the thing you end up with is if the the filmmaker could make a decent peplum, then he could probably make a decent, you know, Thief of Baghdad or, or in this case, The Golden Arrow. Yeah. And it also reminded me, because obviously around that time, didn't Steve Reeves also do... Um was it Morgan the Pirate or something like that? Yeah. There was a there were some pirate films that were all kind of lumped in at the same time. Yep. And that I that idea of the um, the lovable criminal who becomes the hero is sort of similar to to this. I think that he's uh, he's kind of a you know a leader of a gang. He's out just to to sort of con and everything, but then he be, becomes a hero. And I, I don't know that idea of the the heroic bad guy. Uh, just reminded me of the the, the the fun pirate films as well. Well, yeah, and the um, well, let's 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 address the the, uh, the 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 monster in the room, which is the fact that uh, Tab Hunter is the whitest and blondest Arab that has ever existed. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some story, isn't it, at the beginning or at some point when he's talking to his friend about how they found him as a baby and brought him up in the in the the tribe or something like that. Yeah, but like it's, he, he they, still ends they up... They acknowledge that he's an outsider, but yeah. Yeah, he still ends up it doesn't being uh, the, the, the son of the sultan. So, I mean, <laughs> let's get a look at the sultan and the sultan's wife. I want, I want to know what genetic stock created this <laughs> this this mm. uh, Aryan, Aryan bastard that uh, bestrides yeah. the sands and, and, and lords it over all that he knows and sees. It's very strange. And I... I, I I love the attention to period detail with his uh, with his haircut. Oh, that that is a uh, that is definitely a period haircut. You would you would find yeah. that on almost every uh, white blonde guy in the yeah. desert. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't even bothered to grow a beard. I mean, may, maybe he just couldn't. I don't know. But like, well, often I don't think right, there would be enough time in pre production for someone to grow yeah. an actual beard. I mean, you know, if you, sometimes that, you luck but out. But I mean, for the for the character. Everyone else, you know, if he's really roaming around with this gang of bandits, they're all hairy guys. Mm-hmm. And here, here he is with his blonde Elvis quiff and a completely <laughs> smooth face. It's pretty funny. Yes, his hair is his hair is extraordinarily Elvis. That is for sure. Yeah. The thing is, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of background with 
uh, Tab Hunter's films. I've not seen a whole lot of his movies. I, I find myself no. being kind of impressed with him in this movie because he's definitely got that thing that you have to have if you're going to be a leading man on screen in that he's good at He's good at projecting. He's good at uh, getting across everything he needs to. I found him to be an engaging performer. He's 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 fun, and he seems to kind of be in the spirit of the thing. He's not someone who seems to be playing down to it or pretending that it's that it's beneath him. And uh, uh, I, like I say, I'm I, I'm I'm sad to admit that I I don't have a lot of uh, Tab Hunter films on my old watch lists, so I don't have a lot of of uh, experience seeing how, you know, maybe he wasn't as good in his younger days, you know, and when he started out in the early 50s and then slowly got better. I'm just looking at him in this movie and going, this is what you, this is a movie star, you know? This is a guy who can command the screen. Yeah, like the only other film that I've seen him in is Lost in the Dust. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wait, have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, years ago. It's fun. Uh, it's so good. It's so funny. Yep. Playing off that, you know, that image that he that he apparently had his entire career. Yeah. And it's like I even when I look at his list of credits, when I see something uh, that he was in, I, I, I like, for instance, OK, I've seen Grease 2. I've seen him in, uh, you know, an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man. I've seen him in, you know, different different television episodes here and there. But it never occurs to me, oh, that's this guy who was this movie star. Yeah. You know, just because he had a, a small role in the life and times of Judge Roy Bean <laughs> doesn't mean that I, you know, paid attention to the fact and knew who he was when he was on screen in those movies, you know. And I've, I've never seen some of the movies that he's kind of more known for, like Ride the Wild Surf. Mm. So I, I, I don't, you know, it's I don't have that background with him. So uh, it is kind of fun to see this and see how he is on screen and kind of think to myself, you know, I, I think I could watch a lot of movies with this guy in it. Yeah, isn't there a documentary that was made recently about him? Oh, yeah, Tab Hunter Confidential, that was it. Yeah, I still, you know, I have not watched that either. And I think that might be my jumping off point to learn a good, mm. de good deal more about him. I mean, the only thing that I do know is that, of course, he was a, he was a gay man, you know, who hid his... Uh, his uh, sexuality from the, the public in general, although apparently behind the scenes it was well known mm. and apparently much, much, un <laughs> much cried about by a number of his female co-stars, sadly. Right. But the uh, the bad reputation that he seems to have had amongst critics as being a, a, a bad actor, all I can see from... Like I say, from this and from the few other things I've seen him in, it's just that he's just so damn good looking that he's almost all good looking actors. You know, they're going to get that kind of uh, that kind of derision from critics because it's so easy to just call them a pretty boy and dismiss them. Yeah, he also reminded me of Kerwin Matthews in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad a bit in terms of the performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar they, they both seem to. Yeah, exactly. They they they're entering into the spirit of yeah. the thing. They're not. Uh, they're 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 jumping in with both feet and not uh, and not winking at the camera, which is which is death to a film like yeah. this. If you if you if you if you can't take the uh, the lead character seriously, then it all just falls apart because then there there are no stakes. When there's something that's kind of adventurous on screen, you can't really buy into it as much. And he does a good job yeah. with this. One thing I think that's funny, and I know that. I know on podcasts you don't just want to read out the IMDb, but before he made this movie, he had his own TV show called The Tab Hunter Show. And in that show, he played a character called Paul Morgan. And 
Which yeah. that reminded it remind, wasn't that the same? Wasn't the Phil Silver show about Sergeant? Wasn't it called the Phil Silver show? But it was about Sergeant Bilko. Like, <laughs> yes, what, is exactly. that an American TV thing that they'd call it the Tab Hunter show? But it's the characters a different name. I just find that really bizarre. It, it, it well in American television, especially in that period, all the way up through the seventies, actually. Oh, it happened in the eighties. Now that I think of it, what would happen is there would be someone who was relatively famous. And so they would they would build a, a television show around the actor, or the actress in some cases, like Lucille Ball. Mm. So they would build a show around them, but just that you know they wouldn't use the character, you know they wouldn't use the actor's actual name as the character that they played. And so yeah, you ended up with things like, um, you know, the Bob Newhart show, where. The character that he, that Bob Newhart plays is named Bob, but it's not Bob Newhart. <laughs> Wasn't that the same and, with the know. Cosby's, the Cosby Show? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's really yeah. funny. It's like the pitch meeting, the the kind of the the uh, the placeholder title just accidentally became the real title. <laughs> they couldn't come up. We've with got a better this show one. for Tab Hunter. We're just you know on the post-it note it just says the Tab Hunter Show. We need to come up with a name. Oh, we didn't. Let's get yeah, let's get to work on scripts, and we'll come up with a title yeah. later. And then it's too late, and it's like oh, crap. Throw it up on screen. That's really funny. Anyway, but yeah, Golden Arrow. I think yeah, I like him a lot in this film. He really um, really gets into the spirit of it, and he's very swashbuckling, and uh, he does have a winning smile. Well, let's talk about how many different types of movies this kind of combines because. Mm. This is a uh, I, I, don't get me wrong I love this I love this film I really get a lot of uh, I get a charge out of it, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it but the the uh, script is constructed from bits and pieces taken from just all over the place uh, you made note on your blog about how uh, the movie starts with uh, a freaking uh, Rob, you know right out of Robin Hood archery contest yeah that is funny it's I mean it's not even not even slightly disguised it's exactly the same as the classic robin hood story which again i suppose ties these films in with the uh the hollywood swashbuckling errol flynn type films from about 10 15 years before or 20 yeah 20 years and before. it's well yeah uh robin hood was uh 39 so yeah 38 39 yeah. 38 somewhere around it crap i can't believe i'm i i'm the one who remembers release dates of films and i can't remember if it was 38 or 39 Some, i am something like that yeah i i feel i should apologize for no good reason whatsoever <laughs> but the uh, the uh so so what we have is you know bits of the arabian nights some robin hood here and there a bit of excalibur thrown in in the in the form of a of an arrow mm. the, the let's let's talk about the look of this film to begin with which is uh Marguerite wouldn't wouldn't always shoot as wide as this movie, this movie is shot wide. This is like two, three, five. This yeah. is uh, this is very wide, and it is beautiful in color. This is a gorgeous looking film. It's it's very colorful. They go out of their way in the costuming and in the set dressing to uh, amp up the colors so that uh, they're, they're kind of getting you know the most bang for their buck. You know, nobody's dialing down the the color hues mm-hmm. when they they look at this when they're putting the movie together. Everybody's looking to to get as much um, varied color on screen as possible. And um, the that that's something I was I mean I was really surprised by because there was a there was a part of me and I don't know if you you felt this way as well which is just how the hell did this movie end up on Blu-ray before some other movies did 
But then when you look at it, when you see the, the, how beautiful it is and how colorful it is, you kind of understand because, wow, it really pops on screen. Mm. Yeah, and, and the, the fact that he had access to really good um, sets and locations, according to the IMDb, he went to Egypt. And I think you, there are some scenes amongst Egyptian ruins and stuff. So he because he, he was able to really open up the scope because everything in the frame looked good. He didn't have to disguise the low budget by uh, keeping it small. He was able to just have a wide shot and everything you see, all the landscape and the ruins and whatever, it would all just, it all really all added to it. So, um, yeah, it does It does look pretty spectacular, especially yeah, the stuff where they're in the real ruins is really cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. I mean, it, it, it really adds something to the movie when you can see the actor uh, f- forward in the frame and then all in the same shot start running up those ancient stone steps. Mm. It's like, oh, no, they're they're really there. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 it adds a lot to the movie. Of course, also, I guess that made the film extraordinarily expensive. And and uh, from what I understand, uh, may have bankrupted uh, the production company oh, really? <laughs> that, that financed this thing. Yeah, it, it did not do nearly as well as they had hoped. And so I don't think that the uh, the financial end of this uh, was uh, very good. I think they uh, they may have misspent their money if they were looking to make a whole lot of profit. But I'm just I'm kind of glad they did. You mentioned that the film, you know, he's not uh, having to like hide things because of budget for you know, probably the first time in his entire career. But Marguerite also, the only time he has to like start hiding something is when he's, he's going to be matching the uh, real locations with his miniature work. And when, you know, when he's going to be having to hide the joins between the special effects, background shots and, and things of that nature. And um, of course this movie has uh, another of one of my favorite Marguerite things when he, when you start getting into his miniature effects works, which is the um, the toppling of of, of uh, ancient construction work, oh, yeah. which is yeah. the 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 uh, the and it's pretty effective. I mean, you know, he does he does he does as much as he possibly can to marry the special effects miniature work with the the real life place. Uh, any any sophisticated viewer is going to be able to pick out exactly how he's doing what he's doing. But I still really enjoy the effort and the it, it is fun. The, the construction of the uh, the miniatures matches everything that was shot on set mm. or on I should say on location of course and the um, the as usual I almost always with Margariti years ago back when I first started watching these movies on you know VHS and things like that I would be completely unaware of some of the miniature work in some of the more modern day films when he's doing mo- you know miniature car crashes and things like that it would look pretty realistic you know in you know lower def yeah. on a on an old CRT television screen and uh, these days as i've gotten older and i've i've learned more about how this stuff is done and you get into the high def realm it is a lot easier to see how the filmmakers are doing what they're doing but it's still fools the eye well enough that it's like Ray Harryhausen effects. To me, there's so much effort put into it that I just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I love what he's doing. All the, all the effects work in this. And I, and a lot of it is just matte work stuff, you know, background matte paintings Mm. and things of that nature. But when you get into the, uh, to the actual, um, like, you know, crumbling buildings and that, 
Rube Goldberg-like thing where they're trying to move that obelisk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's really fun. I mean, yeah, you know, as a as a guy in my fifties, trust me, I know it's, <laughs> it's 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 exactly what it is. But it's the fact that it is what it is that makes me love it even more to a degree. Yeah, and he also uses um, some processing, kind of a very early blue screen, to get the the magic carpet flying around. But what I thought, oh uh, yeah, yeah, and some of that doesn't quite work, and it goes a bit transparent in places. But what I liked is that he also shot the flying carpet on location. There's, um, I think, he just basically fixed the carpet to the front of the camera crane because there are shots where you see Tab flying over the action and firing his arrows, and he's really there. I'd like so I th- I thought that was really good. And again, like you were saying about matching the miniatures to the real place here. He's matching the the process shots with real footage to to help to stop the audience thinking about the special effect, and uh, and again mm-hmm. that also shows some ingenuity with his low budget that he's thinking how are we going to get this flying carpet to fly over the battle, and then he looks around and he sees he's got this camera crane and he's like aha, and then they just fit <laughs> fit the camera to the front of that and hey presto, flying carpet is really good. And it, it, it all look it all looks fun. I mean, because the you know there's so many different ways that the usual way to do to do the uh, you know the flying carpet thing. Everybody everybody knows you just you know it's on the floor. You shoot it and then you you know you mat it against uh, the sky background. But he really goes out of his way to find three or four different ways to show you the carpet in motion or in flight. Mm-hmm. Doing his I mean he's doing everything he can to kind of uh, fool the eye to make it as believable as possible, you know, so that when you start cutting all these different ways of, of getting this, uh, this object, this inanimate object to move, you're, you're doing as good a job to fool the eye as you can. And it really looks great because like I say, even if you and I sitting here in, you know, 2020 know exactly how this kind of thing is done, the effort that was gone, that, that went into it, that they went to was just, it's amazing because they're doing their best. And if you just sit back and, you know, turn off, turn off your, you know, rational, how did they do that kind of mindset, which, you know, sometimes is, sometimes is easy, sometimes is difficult. It really is wonderful because it flows very effectively. And, you know, you got to admit a movie like this probably was made with a, with a, an eye toward it being uh, primarily for a younger viewing audience. And, the amount of work that, that they put into this shows that maybe they, they, they were thinking, you know, we need to get the adults, we need to fool the adult eye as well. And I think they, they do such a good job and there's just so much effort put into it. It just makes it that much more fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and it's such a bigger scale because obviously this was only his second film, I believe, after Battle of the Worlds. And that was all mm-hmm. very small. I think it was all shot in the uh, Titanus Tatanus Studios, however you, however they pronounce it, um, which was one of the smaller studios uh, in Rome, or was it? I know some of his other films were at Tatanus. Anyway, it was all studio bound, and here he is in his second movie, traveling across the world, and so much of it is outside, and all of these extras, and it's the scale is so. It was such a big step up for him. It yeah. must have been quite. Uh, daunting <laughs> I would imagine I would also wonder if the movie had 
if the movie had had a uh, a better financial outcome, how it might have changed his career tra- trajectory, if it might have set him on a slightly different path. Mm. But I mean, it's, it's it's hard to know that. But yeah, I mean, he still did another couple of Peplum films after this, as well as get mm-hmm. starting to move towards the gothic horror, and then he just sort of jumped between the two for a while. But what I think is particularly fun is that, as well as so this, you could almost look at this as his first. Um, major film after Battle of the Worlds being quite a small film but then of course right at the end of his career he finishes his career working on Genghis Khan the story of a lifetime um, which featured huge battle scenes and horses and you know similar costumes to what he was doing on this so it was it was kind of 30 something years later he was back working on a very similar kind of film uh, he's like his career had gone full circle. Well, um, oh, before before uh, we should we should mention that you know, when we were talking about the look of this movie, um, the cinematographer on this movie is a guy named uh, Gabor Pogani hmm. or Pogani, and uh, he's got a long list of, list of credits. This wasn't the last time that he would work with uh, Margariti. Um, depending on how much of Hercules' Prisoner of Evil Margariti was responsible for. Um, he, he was the cinematographer on that as well. But you look at the long list of credits that this cinematographer had. This he, he's, he's either a director of photography or a cinematographer, depending. And, uh, wow. wow, he made a lot of movies. Mm. And I mean, they, they were such a... Um, I mean, they were a film factory at this point. This is a couple of years after Hercules had come along and changed everything. Yeah. And so if you were in with the studio system in Rome, then you were just working constantly. And, uh, yeah, this guy looks like he was having no trouble going from job to job to job. <laughs> well, no, um, he, he, we're, we're talking like four or five movies a year throughout the 60s. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, some of the films I've seen, I, I recently watched the uh, Blu-ray of uh, Double Face, uh, the Klaus Kinski film. He shot that oh, as yeah. well. Oh, and, okay. And it's it's luminous. It's, it's, it, it is a beautiful-looking film. And of course, I've also seen uh, he he shot the uh, 1972 Bluebeard uh, with uh, Richard Burton, and that's fasc- right. that's that's a fascinating film. No, I've never uh, seen that. He did uh, do about, the Pink, did, Pink Floyd live at Pompeii. That's pretty cool. I've seen that. Exactly. Which you know, that's and as director fun. of photography on that, that's that's intriguing to 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 be to be working on something like that along with you know movies like Valdez is coming and and Hornet's Nest and and things of that nature it's just like wow this yeah. <laughs> this guy uh, well yeah he was it, obviously just doing whatever work was mm-hmm. thrown his way and people would seek him out because of that visual uh, look that he was good at coming up with Oh, and also clearly he must not have been too much trouble considering that he seems to have been able to work fast enough to do multiple films in a year even even in the even in the 1970s so mm. as i mentioned earlier i'm a little shocked that this margariti film ends up on blu-ray before some other in my opinion more kind of fascinating movies movies that i think might do you know they might have a more built-in audience out there um, like for instance, I, I'm still a little puzzled as to why some of his uh, some of his spaghetti westerns haven't ended up on Blu-ray yet. It's yeah. I'm I'm a little I'm a little shocked to be honest because uh, some of some of uh, Margariti's Blu uh, Blu-ray release, some of the, the films of his that have come out on Blu-ray. Don't get me wrong, I want them all, but the uh, 
the the fact that we don't have a Blu-ray of some of the some of the more fascinating things that he did. I mean, I is there? A, I don't even think there's a uh, a Blu-ray yet of Seven Deaths and a Seven Deaths and a Cat's Eye, which oh is, yeah, there is. I've got that. Is there? Where, where, where's yeah, it from? Yeah, came out in the UK with um, eighty-eight films. Ah, good. To I know. think is that the that's the Jallo one, yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a it's a period set giallo. Yeah, I've got that. Oh, that, I, ha- okay. I haven't written that's, about it yet, but I have got okay, it. Okay, that's that's more money I'll have to spend. Okay, good. And, <laughs> and, but but at the same time, it's like where you know we need a we need a good we need a Blu-ray of and God said to Cain and Vengeance yeah. and, uh, and I'm really it, surprised that somebody like Mondo Macabro hasn't picked up um, Naked You Die. That would seem to be up their street. Oh no! I, yeah, exactly. And like I say, there I know there's a built-in audience for his uh, quartet of science fiction films that you know that were made back to back: Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, War Between the Planets, and Snow Devils. And yeah. uh, it's like, don't get me wrong, I'm very happy with the one. I'm gl- I'm glad you know Long Hair of Death is available on Blu-ray, and and um, is the, is Virgin Virgin Nuremberg is it available? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I mean, Castle of Blood is another one I would love to have on Blu-ray. I know. How is that not on Blu-ray yet? It has to be some kind of rights yeah. issue, or maybe uh, maybe they don't have the correct materials. But Severin, um, Severin owned the rights to that one, I believe, because they did the DVD, and then they put it on that uh, Nightmare Castle Blu-ray set. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but they they put on a really scratched up, kind of grindhouse print. That's what um, makes me think that it may be that they're that they don't ha- that they yeah. don't have access to a you know like a decent uh, version of it. That well, would, that's of all the Margarita films I've seen, and I'm including Wild Wild Planet in this list, I think um, Castle of Blood is my favorite. Oh, I understand. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's wonderful. If I had to pick a favorite Margarita film, I would have to. It, I, to be honest, I would have to pick a favorite from the '60s, a favorite from the '70s, and a favorite yeah. from the '80s, because <laughs> there's such different types of movies. Um, what what was being done? You know, the, the genres that he moved between. I, I I can't compare, for instance, Castle of Blood and um, Take a Hard Ride. It's they're you know they're so different that it's ridiculous to even kind of compare them in a way. So like I said, I have to just break it down. The, the the there's a horrible part of me that wants to go. I will pick a favorite in each genre he filmed in. That gives me like twenty shots, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and then of course you've. We're not even that's overlooking uh, Treasure Island in outer space. That, oh, I know. Uh, I know. I've I've I watched the first chunk of that. Um, talk about a movie that I that I wish someone would lavish some love on uh, from 1987, Treasure Island in outer space. Outer space. It was a TV miniseries in five episodes, and you you have been watching it carefully. Slowly. Well, yeah, very slowly. I'm I'm. St- I do, I've blogged a couple of, I think, the first three episodes, <laughs> and I need to get back to that. But then I got distracted going through all the episodes of Your, so uh, <laughs> which is wonderful, I, which I need to get back to uh, to finishing those off. But yeah, Treasure Island in Outer Space is really good. It's surprising how little well known it is because it's very, very good. Well, I mean. It's never had a, as far as I can tell, it's never had a release in the states. I'm not sure if it was if there's some kind of official release that came out in the UK. Was there? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've only seen it because somebody has very kindly posted it on YouTube. In and it looks really good actually. The quality of the 
copy on YouTube is really good. I think it's come from Germany because mm. some occasionally it will drop into German and then it will go back to English. Um, but it's it's a it's a great show and uh, uh, yeah, somebody well, one I mean, day hopefully will pick it up. I, I would I would love. Well, see, that's just it for me. What's uh, as 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 pathetic as I am. I'm very thrilled that there is a great You're the Hunter from the Future Blu-ray that came out over here in the States, but yeah. the missing piece for me there is that I would I want uh, I want the full-length TV version of it that's so, yeah. you know, so much longer. I want that on a Blu-ray as well, so I will never be satisfied. Maybe I'm one of these nitpicky <laughs> bastards. I don't know. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to see the Swamp Monster fight in HD. Exactly. <laughs> I want I want it all, man. But I mean, also, I mean, I do also want you know, the Ark of the Sun God and and uh, Commando Leopard. Actually, I do have the German Blu-ray of Commando Leopard because I could not stop myself. Uh, <laughs> but but Hunters of the Golden Cobra, you know, so all of those films that he made in the eighties. Like I say, that's why I talk about you know the the difference between the sixties, seventies, yeah. and eighties for his for his entire career is uh, those are very different movies from uh, what he was doing in the 60s and the the, desi- the desire to just nail down like one or two movies is like well there's only a couple that I would I would say that I didn't enjoy and there are you know for every one that I don't enjoy there are five that I do so what am I supposed to say mm. and when you look at his um, his filmography obviously you know, uh, Golden Arrow looks like it was the first film that he made where he traveled outside of Italy but then he was, he's, you know, for a lot of his career, he's traveled all around the world. Obviously, you know, he went to yeah. Hong Kong for um, uh, Mr. Hercules. Uh, what's it called? Hercules versus Oh, Mr. Karate. Her- Mr. Hercules against Karate, yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, you know, he went to Brazil to do Indio. Um, he traveled a lot. And it's interesting, a lot of people, I don't know why, really, because they're so different, but he gets compared to Mario Bava all the time. As being not as good as, but people just write him off because he's not as good as Barber. Yeah, and I, I, I partly blame Tim Lucas for that, because he does he does that in his book, and he's yeah. just he's just put it in people's minds that there's no point looking at Margariti because he's not as good as Barber, and that may be true in some ways, but Barber, you know, you can count the number of films that Barber made on like two hands, maybe three hands, possibly. Well, I mean, well, it's whereas and with Margariti, call, call it twenty films, roughly. Yeah, Margariti made about like fifty films or something. I mean, yeah, he's extraordinary, and it, and he was traveling all around the world. You know, Bava, as far as I know, didn't travel very far outside Italy at all. Maybe to yeah. Austria for Baron Blood, I think. But um, so a very different way of working, and and obviously Bava's projects were a bit more carefully chosen perhaps and that's why there aren't as many whereas Margariti again just seemed to take whatever job was going and would travel all around the world and it's a very different way of making films to to Barva I mean there's no denying that Barva was a great artist but Margariti was one of the best yeah but Margariti was a working director who was always working and uh, if a film didn't do very well didn't matter because he'd already just finished another one and and he would just keep going and with and you look at all the years that he was making films there's not really any break at all it's like he barely took a holiday he just kept kept going constantly 
Um, we- so he's a very different... So really, I don't think the comparison is fair just because they're both Italian and they both worked in similar genres occasionally. They're both very different kinds of directors. Very true. I mean, the uh, I, w- I, would, I would say that uh, you almost... I mean, there, there is the one film crossover, the, the film that uh, Bava began, you know, was, was mm-hmm. began as a project that uh, that Marguerite ended up directing, which is Naked You Die or The Young, The Evil, yeah. and The Savage. But, um, and, and apparently there was a bit of a rivalry between the two of them, especially in the uh, 60s and early 70s. Uh, when they, you know, when they were working, working filmmakers, uh, you know, their their careers paralleling in some strange way. But yeah, you're right. It does. If you dismiss Margariti because he's not Baba, you're missing out on a lot of joyous film. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake because yeah. Margariti at his best. If if I were to if I were to if I were to just set someone down and say, okay, look, here's five Margariti films. Watch these. And then I think you'll get a sense of just how good the man could be. It's like, you know, try Castle of Blood, try Wild Wild Planet, try And God Said to Cain, you know, um, mm. you know, do do these movies. Uh, watch it. Watch this handful of movies and you'll see that. Yeah. OK. He's not he's not Bava. But then again. He wasn't trying to be. He was uh, he was a working filmmaker. And we, when you can pull out four or five movies and say, these will give you a flavor of how good he was. This will give you a sense of his capabilities. And you can say, oh, and by the way, there are about 40 more of these. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think I'm going to be old and retired and still working my way through his filmography. Uh, <laughs> and there are some films, despite the fact that there are plenty available, there are some really intriguing ones that I would love to see that um, don't appear to be available. I, I did some research, I don't know how, how long ago it was, a couple of years ago, where I tried to make a list of all the lost films of Margariti. Um, and I even spoke briefly to his son about this on Facebook. Um, and yeah, there are several that are missing. He Because he started out as a script writer and, and some of his earlier films have disappeared that he wrote. Um, there's his Mondo film that he made that's nowhere, apparently. He did one of those in the wake of... Um, who was it who did the Canterbury Tales? And it's gone out of my head. Those other movies. Not Pasolini. Was it Pasolini? Pasolini, yeah, I think so. Anyway, there was a sudden trend for those kind of films. And, and um, Margariti did a, a, did a Decameron film. Um, oh, okay. which is based on that kind of riotous uh, Middle Ages orgy-type movies, and that's missing. Uh, a couple of his westerns appear to have disappeared. There's a Poliskia Teschi that's kind of available, but only in Italian. Um, and then there's the Genghis Khan film, of course, which is still not available anywhere. So there's quite a few intriguing things that are lost, as as well as all the good ones. Yeah, exactly. There's so many of his films that you have to. I mean, it's tricky to see, like uh, the Unnaturals from 1969. Yeah, uh, is is difficult. I mean, I've, I've I've got a copy of it. It's not a very good copy of it. Yeah, that's probably the same one I've got. Yeah, I know, and it's it's one of those things where you're just like this this film would be, it would be wonderful to see this presented well. Mm. Uh, but the, it's. And, and that can be said of a number of the films that you know that you, you were just talking about, where it's like there's a 
I don't know how big an audience there is out there for this kind of stuff. I mean, we I, we're not privy to the to the sale figures of different DVDs and Blu-ray releases over you know of his of his uh, of his work over the years, but the uh, you know films like you know especially the spaghetti westerns and you know Seven Deaths in a Cat's yeah. Eye and things like that. It's like you'd know these these would make money. There's there's no way they would not sell well to it to a large degree. Um, but the, uh, you know, and, and I, I know for a fact that there would be an audience out there of, uh, aging lunatics who saw things like Ark of the Sun God on HBO when we were kids who'd be like, Oh God, I would love to see that again. But yeah. the, you know, you have to, you have to get out there and convince people of this to a degree. And, and there are so many different pathways that, uh, you know, video releasing companies can go down. I don't know how much hunger there is for, for diving headlong into Margariti's career and kind of rolling around in it and finding out what you can. <laughs> but um, the, uh, I mean, even back to the, to the 60s stuff, I mean, uh, like uh, the, the Slave Merchants, the, the kind of a Son of Hercules kind of film with Kirk Morris, it's like, there, you know, couldn't somebody out there get their get the hands on that and Hercules Prince Prince Pr- Prisoner of Evil and do like a double feature release of those two yeah. you know similar genre films and just you know maybe Giants of Rome or something like that it's it's it wouldn't be that hard to to dream this kind of stuff up but then again I'm not the one who's out there risking you know capital mm. on doing this kind of thing but when you I mean obviously we've just had all the Black Friday sales at Severin and yeah. Vinegar Syndrome and stuff. And when you see some of the obscure stuff that you have never heard of, and it's suddenly given a two-disc special edition treatment with yeah. a slip cover, and people are foaming at the mouth trying to get copies of films that they'd only just heard of five minutes before, <laughs> and you know some weird Euro cult horror thing, or some really obscure Jallo that no one has ever seen is suddenly getting a three-disc edition, and everyone gets super excited so it's possible that i mean i suppose that's what gives me hope in a way that eventually some of this will suddenly appear you know you'll see severin's upcoming black friday exclusives yeah and it'll be a, a three disc edition of naked you die or something <laughs> you know like it, it, it seems like anything is possible now maybe so in, in, in like i say i'm part of what i'm complaining about you know because I, I of course immediately went to the the spaghetti westerns which i think would sell immediately mm. And, oh, then, yeah. and then one of my favorite genres that isn't quite so popular anymore, the peplums, is and you know I'm I'm putting the idea out there of you know doing double features or triple features of some of that stuff, and it's because nobody seen you know nobody's really paying attention to that genre right now no. it seems, but the the ideas are at least there. It's like if I'm coming up with this off the cuff, then surely there's somebody out there who's in a position to to look into how to purchase the rights to release these things who is having similar ideas because you know at the the end of the day we're all film nuts anyway and you're right these these obscure films that are coming out in these in these incredible special editions from these boutique uh, video releasing companies thank god you know this is wonderful What, what wonderful times we live in but at the same time the, the, the moment when I realize, okay, maybe I'm part of the problem is when I'm, I'm going, oh, ooh, look over here, look over here. You know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Uh, you know, I'm not the guy complaining about, you know, not there not being enough extras or, you know, not particularly enjoying the extras on a particular release. I'm the guy who's going, and now that you've done that, do this. So maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm part of the problem. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that there's only so much time and money in the world. True. And, uh, you know, all of these great films that are coming out all the time. I don't know if I'll live long enough to watch everything in my collection. So uh, well. I'm not necessarily in a huge hurry. But you're right about the Peplum films. And it's this is a, a definitely an overlooked um, genre. Although I thought it was interesting. I think it was Kino um, ages ago now. It feels like it was last year. They announced that they were going to do a Blu-ray of um, oh, what's it called in English? It's um, Machiste Contro Vampiro, which is um, Hercules versus the Vampire or something like that. Oh yeah, and and uh, that's a great one. I actually wrote about that in my PhD, and so that was I was quite excited that they were going to do that. Um, but then it hasn't come out yet, and there's still no release date on it. So I don't know what's happened to that, but. And of course, they also did a Euro spy box set not that long ago. So occasionally, films do escape obscurity, but but there's no wholesale uh, sort of love for the Peplum films. It seems, which is no. a shame because there are so many of them. That, but obviously, until we get the original Hercules and Hercules Unchained on Blu-ray, which I don't is think there's bizarre. much hope for some of the. Yeah, I don't think there's much hope for a lot of the obscurer ones because if people aren't even interested in the two main ones that changed everything uh, for Italian cinema, then I don't think we're likely to see some of the more obscure ones just yet, sadly. I'd love to know the story behind why Hercules, the first, those first two groundbreaking, you know, world-shaking Hercules films haven't been released on Blu-ray yet. It's just, it boggles the mind. I mean, I would have to think yeah. that it's got to be, some, it, it's got to be someone asking far too large a price for the rights. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, Joseph E. Levine got the worldwide distribution rights for that, and other films of his have seen the light of day. Obviously, um, Severin, a couple of years ago, did Joseph E. Levine's Jack the Ripper yeah. on Blu-ray. So, and other Joseph E. Levine titles have come out. Um, he's quite a well-known name. So, yeah, why Hercules hasn't? Who knows? It's very strange. It is, it is extraordinarily anyway. strange. We've got way off the beaten track oh, here. Yeah, well, uh, and let me let me let me pull us back to the Golden <laughs> Arrow for a second because, okay, one of the things that I love about the movie is its pacing because man, it moves like a shot. Uh, this mm-hmm. there's and it's not just that it's it's well paced or quickly paced. It's that the the script keeps offering enough surprises every few minutes. There's something new and interesting being put in front of the camera that you've not seen before in the movie you've not seen it until it it pops up there there's always some new image some new uh character some new strange situation sometimes there'll be uh you know a special effect sequence sometimes there'll be just a you know a, a visit to a bazaar uh or in some yeah, cases or some some com- some comedy relief from uh three slightly inept genies <laughs> i know the okay the 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 genies and i and i, I think I, I i'm with you i'm not sure if we should call them the genies or the genie i'm not sure what the plural <laughs> is there but the yeah the the fun of uh i have to i have to admit i worried uh the first time i watched this film i thought oh okay okay so these characters they, they're the comic relief but they're not really just the comic relief there's one of the characters who's definitely comic relief and then there's one character who's kind of the opposite, who's very, you know, who's very serious and kind of, you know, goes along with the the silliness of the of the comic relief character. But the I like the differentiation of characteristics and characterization between the the three genies, uh, because that that whole 
concept is something that could go seriously wrong and kind of derail the tone of the movie to the point where you can't take anything seriously. Mm. When you said, I thought at first you were going to say that they're not just the, when you said about them not just being comic relief, I was going to say because they're not that funny. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> there is that too. <laughs> no, no argument there. That's why I was yeah. so happy that one of the genies, you know, participates in zero humor and is and is quite, mm-hmm. you know, is quite serious in how he's project, how he's uh, uh, dealing with all the problems. He seems to be the the mm-hmm. one who's who's competent enough to keep the other two on track. Yeah, and it's funny that there's there's so much plot, like you were saying, because we've also we then also get he has to end up being in a competition to try and uh, win Princess uh, Jamila. Yeah. And he's got to compete against these other princes and they all, they have to get her like the most, um, they, they end up, well, she's been poisoned as she, is it? And then they've got to, they've all got to team up to save her. And there's, I don't know, I can't even remember. There's, there's so quite a lot going on. Lines going on. If, yeah. you, if you just think about the 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 princess character played by uh, Rosanna Podesta, yeah. If you just think about her and all the things that I, she goes I'm through, I'm always I'm always thinking about her. <laughs> it's it's once you start, it's kind of difficult to stop, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the when you think about okay, so when at the film st- uh, at the film start, she is uh, there's a competition between these princes to see who's the one who can uh, who can marry her. And then she gets kidnapped, and uh, then of course it's 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 our lovely Tab Hunter, who you know he so he he sees her, falls in love with her, decides to take her back. So he takes her back, and then she constructs a whole nother uh, contest for these princes to you know to essentially just go and find something you know that 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 she's never seen before or something. So essentially, she comes up with an with a whole nother contest besides the archery contest at the beginning of the film, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, they they go off to to try to you know to to, to find something that will that will win her uh, her hand for them, and then yeah she gets poisoned and so there's there's so many different there, there's so many different things happening to this character all the time that uh, the the. It, 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 and, and that's not, and she's not the only character this is this is true of because there's always something going on in this movie. Uh, it. it the, the interlocking pieces are uh, are kind of amazing, and you get to the point yeah. where you realize, as a you know, as an as an adult looking at this film as 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 a piece of entertainment, you realize, oh, okay, so a, a lot of these pieces uh, could be uh, extracted out of this if they if they wanted to to shorten this down, they could have taken some of these some of these pieces out of the movie. But you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to because the film the film has said. I, I wonder if the movie was so you know so kind of quote unquote overplotted that that's the reason Margariti directs it at the pace that he does because it's like if I keep this thing moving then it won't be too long. Yeah. Well of course there's also I mean the the film could have been very short because he so in the beginning scene he wins the competition because he can fire the golden arrow. Yeah. So the the winner of this competition gets to marry the princess and he wins it but what he then does is kidnaps her hoping to receive a ransom. Right. He could have actually just married her and got all of her money and the kingdom. <laughs> Which would have been but a, it's a like, pretty short film, you're right. Yeah, and that would have been the end. So, <laughs> like I said in my blog, he seems like a guy who's not open to improvisation. 
Like, <laughs> that was the plan, and he was going to stick to the plan, even though it didn't make any sense because he just won the contest. Well, I, in his defense, just I, will, I will say that there are two <laughs> things working against that, which is once you know once he's up there and he suddenly realizes holy crap i fired the arrow it's a little too late because then all of his cohorts are are primed and ready so anything that he does or says is going to start this you know this plan in motion and the other thing is that he's lied to be up there even touching the the arrow and the bow in the first place and if that guy he may he probably fears that if that guy found out then he'd be tossed in the dungeon, you know, to be fed to the slowly rising crocodiles as he finally eventually is. Um, yeah. Uh, and I love that section of that, that scene as well, but the really quickly, I'd like to, to like to talk about the, uh, one of the scenes in the movie that even as presented in the movie could be extracted from it. If they felt like, uh, if, if they felt like the movie was too long or if they felt like that the, the special effects in it didn't work. And that is the incredible, flaming men in the cave sequence oh yeah it is my goodness in a in a film already jam-packed with imagery and incredible effects work where they're they're doing their best to make everything look as good as possible i am stunned by just the idea of in 1962 trying to create this cave full of flaming men holy crap what a great effect and doesn't something similar happen in your Yes, yes. There's the there's the flaming sword, and uh, yeah. a, a group of men that are pack, that are attacking uh, Yor in that in that movie, and that's that's what I thought of earlier as well. That's yeah. that's when I was talking with John Hudson. That's something that I brought oh, up, right. and it seemed it seemed yeah. very much like a, a, a Margariti realizing that he could uh, use a similar scenario in Yor yeah. later on. <laughs> yeah, he's looking around. He's like, hmm, I've been here before. Why <laughs> let's let's have a cave of burning men? Exactly. Yeah, well, no, it is good. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, it's just you know, in its relatively short running time, it's pretty action packed. Imagine being, I don't know, eight years old or ten years old and seeing this uh, one afternoon. You know, it's hard to imagine which sequence or what image would just stay boiled forever in the ki- in a kid's brain because there's so many moments in the movie where it's just kind of almost overwhelming to a young mind like that like I say the cave I think the cave with the flaming men is the one that I would never be able to forget but mm. uh, depending on the kid you know the 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 scene at the end where the genies are on flying carpets and are are and are bombing the the uh, the yeah. uh, the horsemen with the uh, clay pots uh, th- th- that too. I mean, it's funny and it's effective, and it's just one of those things where I, well, I, I have to admit, I've not seen that before. <laughs> yeah. And what did you think of the sound effect used for when the carpet takes off? Uh, I dislike. <laughs> that's a th- that's a dislike. I don't like the 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 use of the jet sound effect when the yeah. when the carpet takes <laughs> off. It's like you know, if I could change something about the movie, that that yeah. might be the thing that I would change. Yeah, that's almost that is tipping it over into being tongue in cheek, isn't it? Which is sort of a shame because the rest of it, although it's a fun film, it it's internally consistent. But that feels almost like a joke from uh, a Zucker Brothers film or something. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does. You're right. <laughs> oh, I was wrong earlier. By the way, it was released in the UK, but it was released in the UK many years before I was born. Um, and then it's never been released over here on DVD or video or shown on TV or anything like that. So, oh. but it, well, it did get a cinema release back in um, 
in the 60s uh, when we were, I mean, we were getting lots of these Italian sword and sandal type films over here uh-huh. around that time. I made a list of as many as I could in my uh, in my PhD. Actually, I did some research to try and figure out how many of these films actually got distributed in the UK. Yeah, so when I did my um, PhD research a few years ago, I became interested in how uh, my whole thesis was about European film being shown in British cinemas in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so in order to narrow that down a bit, I narrowed it down to some specific genres, one of which was the Peplum film because of the success of Hercules. So I tried to I, I tried to work out how many of these films appeared in the UK. Um, and that proved to be more or less impossible mm-hmm. without unless I spent years reading every film, you know, reading every issue of Monthly Film Bulletin and looking at every review and identifying every film as a peplum, which oh my God. I could have done, but I wasn't going to do that because my life <laughs> had other things going on. Plus, so what I decided the, the, to do... The return on investment to that, to, to that well, yeah. activity would be very small, I would think. I know, because this is basically just in the appendices anyway. So what I, But what I did do was I did a keyword search on the BBFC database. So I was using the BBFC database, every film that was submitted to the BBFC for a certificate um, is on their database. So I just did keyword searches between 1959 and 1968. Um, So I found that there were 16 films with the name Hercules in the title, um, 11 films with Gladiator in the title, that was the second most popular, Uh, and then Goliath was third with seven Goliath films, and then various other ones, Samson, Machiste, Rome, etc. So I didn't actually pick up this film because the Golden Arrow didn't fit my uh, search terms. But it's interesting that in 1959, there was only one film, which was Hercules. And then in 1960, there were five, no, six films. And and it just went on and on and on. I think the busiest year... Busiest years were 1963 to 1965. Ah, okay. There were just loads and loads and loads. So it became a very popular genre for a sort of three three year period. All of these independent distributors, but also people like MGM were getting in on it and Warner's, as well as lots of lower down the ranks companies as well. But there was so many of them coming in. You know, Colossus of the Stone Age, Ulysses against Hercules. Battle of the Spartans. Um, oh, here we go. Goliath against the Vampire. That was the one I was mentioning before. Vengeance of the Gladiators. Even um, the Giants of Thessaly was distributed under the name Jason and the Golden Fleece. Oh, yeah. To tie in to tie in with Jason and the Argonauts. So, yeah, the, it was pop. So in British cinema, it was really popular. I don't think we had them on television as much. I know in America, they were often repackaged for TV. By, yeah, um, oh, by definitely. A- That's how I saw some as yeah. a youth, yeah. So I know AIP and various people were, were doing that for television and you were getting all these Sons of Hercules films. But in the UK, we didn't have that. So we just had these cinema releases in the 60s and then basically they disappeared. They didn't have a second life on television like they did in America. Which is a bit of a shame. And yeah. I think that... That I think that unfortunately, the kind of uh, snobby look at you know the snobby attitude toward these movies that prevailed for a long period of time, I think to one degree or another still persists, and that's why you know we can sit here and lament the fact that we'd love to see 
all these movies coming out in you know in decent HD format so that we could really kind of dig into them and study them even closer than is possible currently. But it's 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 rare to see any of them come out like that. I, I you, you, until you mentioned it earlier that Goliath and the Vampires Blu-ray announcement from a long while back, like I say, mm. possibly 2019. Yeah. I'd forgotten all about that until you brought it up. But yeah, the film that that still has not arrived. Yeah, and I I own an original um, UK press book for that film that I picked up at a film fair a few years ago when I was gathering material for my thesis. Mm. And I did contact them and say, hey, do you want a copy of this to use? But they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're, I mean, Kino seems to be fairly bare bones about what they do, so they weren't interested, which is a shame because it's quite cool, but no one wants it. So I was just sitting in a cupboard in my house. Yeah, that is a shame. Because the if the Kino is adding extras now, I can remember you know they're, they're adding commentary tracks and the occasional interview and things like that. But yeah, they're they're not uh, they don't go out of their way like a lot of the the real boutique. You know they're they're not they're not Severin or Mondo Macabro or anything like no. that where they're they're going way out of their way to find people and and get uh, you know a lot of detailed information about the movies to add on, it, which is a shame. I mean, don't get me wrong. If, if all we get is the movie and it looks perfect and is gorgeous and is, you know, an HD, hey, wonderful. I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you're offered something, hey, man, if you're offered something, somebody just puts it in front of you. I don't and know I, you don't. Yeah, I would have given it to them for free. I'd have just asked for a copy of the Blu-ray. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I did get Kino's recent release of Soldier Blue. And I was really surprised at how they were, they made no mention at all on the back of the fact that it was the longest version available, that it was uncut, how controversial really? the film was. Like, there's no scene, they don't seem to know what they have. It's just, here's another Western, and it's got a commentary track, and that's it. They don't seem to know the, the reputation that Soldier Blue has, um, wow. which seems very odd that they wouldn't mention anything to do with that on the blurb or anything. So, yeah, strange. But anyway, I'm glad to have it. So, I, one, one thing I'm always curious about is what a film like this was thought of at the time. I, uh, uh, you, in all your research, I mean, uh, did you turn up any reviews of this film? What, what, what was it thought of at the time? Because, I mean, there's a big difference between what an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old me would have thought about this movie and an adult <laughs> in the uh, 19, mid-1960s. Yeah. I mean, luckily, in the UK, every film that was released got reviewed in the monthly film bulletin. So you can always find a review in there for anything that came out. Um, so I found a review for this. Um, although, I mean, it's a bit late. It, see, it didn't seem to come out here until 1965, hmm. which is about two or three years after the film was made. And it says, this is a return to old time oriental spectacle with all the Arabian Nights trappings and trimmings, which hasn't been seen much since the heyday of Yvonne De Carlo, for whom Rosanna Podesta is a pale substitute. Screen, uh, screen wizardry seems to have advanced little in the interim. The special effects and photographic trickery are of unusually variable quality. <laughs> Distinctly poor in the Egyptian city episode, though spectacular enough in the fiery cavern with the flaming men. Uh, the genii, they use genii here, plural. The genii are used mainly for feeble comic relief and the film suffers further from a lack of dash and from Tab Hunter's weak playing of the hero. Bit harsh. 
that 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 is a bit harsh and i would like i say i would disagree i'm i like when i see him in this movie i see a guy who you know is a natural in front of the camera his charisma really does kind of come off well i mean this reviewer was probably more keen on reviewing the latest uh bergman film so uh (laughs) it's perhaps not that surprising that he's a bit dismissive yeah it's yeah it's a bit sniffy but we're used to that in this realm of film. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> it's you know we 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 don't care either. These are the things we love, and we don't really give a shit what other people think. So come on, people, yeah. enjoy what you enjoy. That's right. Well, uh, I, I guess uh, to a large degree, I think in both halves of this podcast, we've spoiled the crap out of this film. But I think that it could best be wrapped up with uh, the phrase. I think you used it earlier, <laughs> and they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, it's not really. I don't think that's much of a spoiler because, you know, I think it would be more of a spoiler if we said, and he died. <laughs> and, you know, that he was, would be behead, he was you, beheaded by the Sultan. And <laughs> yeah, no, you, you know exactly what you're going to get when you go into this kind of film. But the fun is how you get there rather than what happens at the end. But yeah, of course, he ends up with the princess. Of course. And I think you, you saying that it's it's the way we get there that's the fun part. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because this movie is built to be an adventure. This is an Arabian Nights adventure, and uh, mm. you know, with a with a blonde Aryan hero. Yeah. <laughs> Although he's he was dubbed by a different actor, so that's not his voice in the film, which is a shame. No, but it's a good voice. Yeah, it sounds okay. I'd have liked to have heard his voice in there, but I, I guess, completely yeah. agree that would be nice. That's, Again, it's quite standard for Italian films at that time. Uh, there's a there's a funny story that uh, Tab Hunter told, uh, as I rustle more paper. Uh, Tab Hunter told in his uh, in his autobiography about the the making of this movie. He said uh, it's when he and uh, Rosanna Podesta are are uh, doing this scene where they kiss together. He says. Uh, a million flies swarmed into our hair, our eyes, and our mouths. They were all over everything, everywhere. <laughs> Cut, screamed Antonio Margheriti in Italian, his native tongue. We were on location in Egypt, shooting a sword and sandal spectacular for the Italian company Titana Studios. Margheriti stormed around, spewing lots of vowels, gesturing wildly at the mostly Egyptian crew. What is he saying, I asked Rosanna as we battled the insect invasion. Antonio is asking how to say shit in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> Rosanna explained while she sp- while spitting flies. At times like this, I doubted the wisdom of putting everything I owned in storage and accepting the lead role in this film. <laughs> Tab goes on to recall the film a kind of an enjoyable stinker, which gave him a, a free expense paid trip to Rome and Egypt, as well as uh, the chance to race purebred Arab horses through the desert, kind of like Errol Flynn. He talks that he he talks about how he reworked some of his lines uh, to make it to, to make them sound better, but you know then being disappointed that you know they didn't even use his own voice in the movie. But still, the uh, things we don't think about, which is when you're shooting on location in Egypt, you're going to be dealing with flies. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. It's nice to hear somebody actually talk about working with him because that that kind of thing seems to be quite rare. You don't find many interviews where people talk about him, so that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, there are a few, uh, like on the um, that Blu-ray I mentioned earlier of, Com- of uh, Commando Leopard, the, mm-hmm. uh, the German Blu-ray, there's some behind-the-scenes footage of them making that movie. Oh, and cool. 
it's it's really kind of cool. Klaus Kinski's in the movie, and it's very interesting to see that he and Margariti really got along. Man, they're having a, they really are laughing and joking with each other while set, shots are being set up and things like that. They obviously enjoyed each other's company. It, it, it's kind of fascinating because the the conversations with some of the actors in the movie are about how much they enjoy working with uh, with Margariti because he makes he makes everything that they're doing fun. He keeps everybody involved. And uh, that's kind of similar to what uh, I've heard uh, from the few actors who've made comments about working with Margariti, which is that he's uh, he's he's not he's not a hard ass. He's not someone who's going to try to make your life miserable to get a film made. He's 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 fun to work with. So there's that at least. Yeah. Well, I suppose you need that when you're in the desert covered in flies. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> trying trying to be romantic and having to bat away insects. Yeah. Oh my god. Wouldn't it be nice to find in uh, Klaus Kinski's autobiography some passage about how much he enjoyed making Web of the Spider or Commando Leopard or something like that? Would be interesting. To, uh, but I, I, I I'll have to uh, I'll have to ask some people. I, I've I've not ever read uh, Kinski's no. biography, and I've heard I've heard about it. I've heard a lot of stories about it, especially the the salacious bits and pieces yeah. here and there. But uh, yeah, I would love to know if he if he even talks about him because there's just mm. so much so much room to cover in a career like Klaus Kinski's. But anyway, we're off track here. Uh, Adrian, yes. thank okay. you very much for coming on to talk about this Antonio Margheriti film. We'll have to talk off mic uh, in the future about what Margheriti film to cover next. But uh, okay. You are, you are gracious with your time, and I'm so happy that you're willing to do this, man. Thank you so yeah, much. Well, I mean, um, John Hudson has uh, has paved the way, and I feel honored <laughs> to be able to follow in his footsteps. And I will do my best to work in references to the Invisible Chimp whenever I can. <laughs> I'm not going to say thank you, because there is no way to thank you for that. <laughs> I wondered whether that was what he was, you were basically moving him away from Margarita to stop that. That's uh, there's no way to stop that. We, we covered <laughs> man, come on. We he and I covered uh, Harold Lloyd's silent comedy earlier this year, and yeah. he still managed to work the freaking invisible chimp references into <laughs> that. So it's never going away until mm. I strangle him in anger. So <laughs> no, I'm Thank I'm you. pleased to be involved. Thank you very much. Thank you, man. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you should be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's 
because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Well, there we go. That wraps up episode 119 of The Bloody Pit, our handoff episode between John Hudson and Adrian Smith as we continue the ongoing, uh, but I'll admit slow, trek through the films of Antonio Margariti, a long-form look at his career that I'm guessing will just continue on until uh, we eventually run out of movies or we all die, whichever comes first. But, once again, thank you for listening. If you've got anything to say, the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Uh, don't worry, I do eventually reply to those emails. It's just that sometimes I get busy and I forget to check it for weeks at a stretch. So that's that's my fault. But also, uh, join us over on the NashyCast. Uh, this past year has been a fruitful year for new guests over on that show. And of course, we've had a few new guests here on the Bloody Pit as well. Listen in, let us know what you think, and we will talk to you again next time. Rock and roll